G'day mate, 40 here. We are going out live right now over Rumble. We are right now live over Twitter. We are live over Facebook. We are live over YouTube and we are going out live over Odyssey. Let's go. Luke is back. Let's begin with a little bit of analysis from Mark Brahman. More or less play, pay lip service to the same things. Uh, but there is a subterranean aspect to this, which, again, I think is the kind of racial subtext, as it were. Um, and so that's I mean, and again, I think that these are positive developments um, uh, in, in Christian, uh, you know, to the extent that uh, Christianity or Christian nationalism exploit exploits racialist feelings, which evidently Christian nationalism does. Of course, we mm -hmm. see that very explicitly with Nick, uh, for example. Uh, so a lot of things in life. Do not follow their stated name. A lot of things in life do not operate according to their ostensible purpose, right? Many things in life do not operate according to their stated ideology. So nationalism and, and say, kinship-based drives and, and popular movements don't always operate under the term, you know, racial identity or national identity or ethnic identity. Frequently, they claim they're about religion. So Northern Ireland, the conflict between Catholics and Protestants is not over theology. It's not a religious dispute. It's an ethnic dispute that uses, you know, Christian titles. And so Christian nationalism isn't necessarily all about Christianity. It, it may just be an attempt by certain Americans to try to hold on to the America that they feel is slipping away. So having coherence in an ideology or just having coherence in your response to life is uh, not necessarily better than an incoherent response to life. Why? Here's the premise for my show, my life, the outside world, the things that I'm talking about, the things that I'm experiencing inside and the things that I'm seeing around me frequently far more complicated than I can possibly understand. Right? There are far more variables. You know, there are far more subterranean you know, levels of, of forces that, that are operating on, on what I'm seeing or experiencing than I can possibly understand. I can only kind of get glimmers of reality. So I may develop an incoherent response, but frequently the incoherent response is the most coherent response. So how does that make sense? Well, essentially, if your response is adaptive, right? So if it helps you to be more effective in life, if it helps you to sleep better at night, if it helps you to be happier, if it helps you to feel more stable, if it helps you to be more integrated, to operate with all these seemingly incompatible responses to life, then I would say that your incoherent response to life is, is coherent. So you may put forward a thesis. Okay, you let's say you convert to a new religion. And then at the same time, you keep operating in one part of your life in contradiction to that thesis. You, you develop what seems to be an antithesis. And you just can't reconcile these two things, but you're unwilling to give up either one. You're not willing to give up the religion that you converted to, not willing to give up, to, give up the, say, the behavior that your new religion forbids. And so you keep operating in seemingly an incoherent space. But uh, that might turn out to be to be, you know, the most adaptive and coherent response for you because we're increasingly living in a postmodern world, which means we don't believe that there's any one narrative that is adequate to the complexities of the situation. There's no 
one overarching ideology. There's no one overarching story that uh, is effective at, at dealing with this, this complicated, confusing world around us. And so when, when a political movement, a cultural movement, a, a religious movement develops, the most important thing about it is not whether or not it is coherent. All right. So people high in verbal IQ, people with philosophical leanings, all right, they tend to analyze things. Are they logical and, and coherent? But given that there are almost always so many more variables operating that we can possibly understand, all right, the, the incoherent response may frequently be the most coherent response if it is adaptive, all right? Events, circumstances, situations are constantly changing. If a seemingly incoherent response helps you to be more adaptive, all right? So I live in Los Angeles and there are earthquakes, very frequently in Southern California. So the, the ground is shifting under my feet. And so there are all sorts of building codes to help, you know, buildings, uh, uh, particularly skyscrapers, uh, you know, the bigger, the taller the building, but also just uh, simple, uh, you know, two-story apartment buildings have to deal with, you know, building codes and incentives to, to you know, put uh, safety mechanisms in place so that essentially with, with the skyscraper, you want it to be able to rock back and forth when an earthquake hits so it doesn't fall over. And so I think that's how we want to be in life. We want to be sufficiently flexible to deal with the earthquakes that life is going to send us. And so if your incoherent response helps you to be happier, more effective, to sleep better at night, to be more integrated, to be more at ease with yourself and other people, then it's probably a coherent response. If a particular ideology meets the needs of a moment, which then allows its followers to be more adapted to reality and to say, have more children than at a replacement level. And while their opponents, right, they have a much more coherent ideology, but they have fewer children than replacement level. The people who are reproducing, right, they have a more adaptive strategy for life. They are going to become increasingly dominant while those who aren't reproducing, even though they may have this super coherent, you know, sterling, philosophically pure ideology, they've got a less effective, less adaptive uh, approach to life. And I, I see this in the news all the time. So there's a general news media and academic bias to an activist administration and an activist Congress. So a do-nothing Congress, that, that's one of the biggest epithets that you can ever throw at a Congress. What is the difference between reaction and response? So a response you would hope is considered that a, a reaction is just automatic. And, and so when you're reacting, external things are controlling you. They're, they're dominating you. External circumstances, ex, you know, people, situations, all right, they are effectively controlling you because all you're doing is reacting to them. But when you take the time to formulate a response, then you will have more of a sense of agency. And a sense of agency is essential for a feeling of happiness. Now, in some sort of philosophical sense, we may not have free will, but to be happy and to be effective in life really helps to have a sense of agency. So, for example, I have pretty much always avoided holding down any job or gig that required more than about a 20-minute commute because having a long commute significantly reduces your sense of agency because you become far more vulnerable to circumstances outside of your control. 
Like some idiot, right, can clog, you know, destroy the flow of traffic through the 405 freeway. So 9,999 people are driving in, you know, a decent manner, but one idiot can, can block the flow of traffic by, by causing an accident. And you, are, if you have to traverse the 405, you are vulnerable, all right? So your sense of agency is diminished because you, you have to you know, dr drive through LA's very crowded streets. So if you're able to reduce your commute, most people, all other things being equal, will feel much happier because they'll feel much more sense of agency or a, much more of a sense of control over their life. Uh, certainly people with ADHD, they need constant feedback. So perhaps the reason I do so many live streams is that I yearn perhaps for, for constant feedback. And so people with ADHD, they they may not be well suited for managerial positions. They may not be necessarily the best employees. They may be much better suited for you know, being a traveling salesman where they're you know, frequent new environments and situations that they're adapting to and that holds their attention or they may be much better suited to working for themselves where they get immediate results so you can be an employee and you can slack off and you can last weeks months or years before it gets discovered and you get fired but uh, people with with adhd they frequently by by their 30s start moving much more towards a, a self self-employment situation because when you're self-employed, you, you have to produce or you starve. You have to produce or you can't pay the rent. And so for people with ADHD, having like external reminders right in your face is very important. So I'm not sure that I have ADHD when I've just been reading books on it over the weekend. But I think I have some elements of ADHD. I think I'm well short of a full-on ADHD diagnosis. But yeah, I benefit from constant feedback. I benefit from having to say my thoughts out loud and get feedback on them and get challenges on them and have my, my facts and logic you know, shredded if necessary. And so I can then develop a more coherent, more, more rational, more empirical, more fact-based, more reasonable response to life because you're challenging me and you're making me better. And the number one news story in the world, I think, over the past week has been Kevin McCarthy's struggle to become the House Speaker. And there's this bias, I notice, in the news media and in academia and among the elites who are generally left of center, that the activist agenda is better, right? That our, that our bureaucratic systems, our political process is better when there's, there are people running them effectively and passing legislation. But empirically, passing legislation is not necessarily better for either the people who are passing it or for the country. Right? Frequently, legislation makes, makes the world worse, makes the country worse, and redounds to the detriment of the party that, that passes the legislation. So, for example, in 2017, when the Republicans were unable to repeal Obamacare, that may have been a political gift for the Republicans. Perhaps what they had to replace it was not, was not better was not more effective, and so perhaps that was something that got them out of a political hole. So the United States House of Representatives not having a speaker for several days, right, that doesn't necessarily make America a worse place. All right? Passing legislation, swearing in new members, right, having the you know, bureaucratic processes of government working is not always necessarily better than not having the bureaucratic processes of government working. Right? A president who passes legislation it's not inherently doing a better job 
than a president who vetoes legislation and is unable to pass legislation. So I know I, for myself, I've often spent my life feeling like I'm just you know, running in circles. And so many times I would have been better off doing nothing rather than doing something because the things I was doing were frequently self-contradictory. They were incoherent responses to reality. So frequently say depression and the, the resting withdrawal from life and, and general passivity that accompanies depression is adaptive. It's a much more adaptive response than not being depressed because when you're depressed, you ponder where you went wrong, how you misjudge reality, you think about new responses to reality that would better serve you, and then you run through these possible scenarios in your mind to see if they would be better responses to reality. So taking time off. I often take you know, effectively you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks of doing much live streaming so I can just kind of reflect on, on what I'm doing and you know, get, get some more clarity. Like taking action is not always better than, than passivity. Like sometimes the best thing is to just sit there. Sometimes the best thing is to just lie there and meditate and engage in interoception and proprioception. So as I understand, interoception is getting in touch with what's going on inside of you. Proprioception is uh, getting in touch with, with how you're moving. So there's this tremendous bias in the news media that what was going on with the Republicans and the United States House of Representatives was dysfunctional and incoherent. Another perspective is that it's simply democracy at work. Remember, democracy is supposed to be a good thing. And the bargains were pretty much out in the open. So unlike the Democratic House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi, where much of the conflict between the, the Democrats in the House was kind of resolved between uh, behind closed doors, here the Republicans were doing everything in front of the public. So we got to know much more about the type of deals that were being pulled off we got to see democracy in action. We got to see the kind of compromises that you need to make to take political power and, and to try to get things done. And so this pause from enacting legislation, this pause from swearing in new members, this pause from the normal processes of government, not necessarily a bad thing. Frequently, you know, pausing from life, you know, abstaining from taking action is the best thing. I would say to my therapist, oh, this person's bugging me. I need to have one of these two very active responses, and my therapist would say, why Why do you need to do anything? And that was absolutely the best response. I took my therapist's advice, didn't do anything. This person became a good friend. He you know, steered me in the direction of, of a good job, uh, you know, good you know, social occasions, introduced me to people. So I was so much better off by not taking any action against this person who was bugging me. Let's get a little bit, a uh, little bit more commentary here from Mark Rahman. Um, it is by its nature subterranean. It's it's by definition subterranean, right? Uh -huh. Like you know, because it's both. It is and it isn't in the sense that you know, we, we, which hand is which hand is leading the other? Is it a Christian movement or is it a racialist movement? Right. Right. Uh, and uh, it's both in the sense that uh, there's a Christian instinct to kind of you know uh, to exploit or harness this disenchantment among this racialist feeling and to take it in a Christian direction. Uh, but there's also people who are thinking racially who are like, well, this is the way in through uh, Christianity, through the kind of cloak of Christianity, as it were. Right. Right. Um, so I think it's all, it's, they're all ultimately good developments. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, I mean, we'll see. This is, a, you know, this is actually, remember you and I did the, uh, we talked about Ant-Man. Uh, we did a movie review on, on Ant-Man. Yeah. And this, yeah. is basically, this is basically what Darren Cross was trying to achieve by imitating Ant-Man's technology and like also being able to miniaturize, right? Yeah. Uh, so, or we argue that that could be the, the metaphor that's, that's being described there is that Christianity also represents a kind of crypsis, as it were, or it could mm-hmm. potentially represent a kind of crypsis where a racialist, so the world is far more complicated and we're far more complicated than we can possibly fully understand. And yet sometimes we still have to take action. So how do you take action in, in a world that is often you know, beyond your ken? And I think one way of, of taking action, it's just noticing, is this response helping me to feel more integrated, more effective? Am I sleeping better at night? Or is this my response to reality making me feel less integrated? So the uh, this great insight I heard is act as though everybody knows everything. And obviously it's not true. I mean, you don't know everything that's been going on when I don't have the camera on. It's I'm here on vacation in Tenham Sands, Australia. It's currently 9 a.m. in Queensland, Australia. It is January the 8th, 2023. And obviously you don't know everything that's going on in my life. I don't know everything that's going on in your life. But compared to these two attitudes. One is you try to get away with as much as you possibly can, given that you think you can successfully negotiate things behind closed doors and you're just going to operate that way so you can keep secrets versus the attitude everybody knows everything so that when you speak about someone behind their back, right, you expect that it's going to get back to them, right? I find it has a salutary effect on me in general to act as though everybody knows everything. So my, I'm staying with my, my brother in Tenham Sands right now. And uh, last night he was, he was talking to, to a friend and the friend asked if I was still staying with him. And the uh, brother said, yeah. And uh, the friend said, oh, good. So you still got one baby in the house. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I got to admit it. Painfully true. But... Uh, when you hear yourself called by your proper name, you will recognize it. I mean, it, again, it doesn't. It shouldn't be offensive to Christianity. Uh, people can be nominally Christian, and maybe that's sort of wise in America. Yeah, people are often nominally Christian, nominally black, nominally gay, nominally Republican. Right? We divide people into categories as an economizing device because the world is so complicated. We just want to kind of sort people out into Jews, the Christians, black, gay whatever, but people can often have just a nominal allegiance to their title. People are always you know, more complicated. People always have not just dual loyalties, they have all sorts of competing loyalties, not just like two. So virtually everyone who participates in an organized religion, for example, picks and chooses. Right? They pick and choose those elements of the religion that particularly speak to them often depending upon circumstance point. But um, I don't think that, um, you know, I, th- I think this sort of Bible beating you see going on with like uh, Nick Fuentes' movement. I think that, that he's capitalizing on it, a very particular and strange and weird and ultimately kind of marginal uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, Trump was not capitalizing on something. He, Trump was capitalizing on something that was sort of broadly felt and was legitimately populist. Uh, Nick is capitalizing on something that's kind of obscure and niche and internet uh, that, you know, what it, what it lacks in numbers, though, it makes up for in uh, sort of zeal tree and a kind of insane, like a uh, berserker energy or whatever. But it doesn't um, I don't think it's it, I don't think it speaks to a lot of people ultimately. You know what I mean? No, 
This and, is and, and it was also a kind of full culmination of what we saw at the in 2020 at the end of the Trump movement. So, you know, by 2020, like, you know, the, the, his most passionate supporters were these Christian types. So, you know, that woman speaking in tongues, you know, at, at her mega church about they're, they're, they're coming from Africa, they're coming from South America, all this is weird shit. I don't even know exactly what she was saying. Paula White, you know, interesting last name. <laughs> but uh, that, you know, th- they were there at the end and they they would, you know, allow Trump to shoot someone in Times Square or Fifth Avenue or wherever and get away with it or you know, whatever he said. Like, they were his most passionate supporters. And I think Nick and others kind of like unconsciously picked up on that, or consciously rather, and they turned it into a real ideology. So, I mean, you can't, you know, you can't go that far and, you know, you know, as, as let me put it this way, as, as incoherent as like Christian nationalism is, Christian Zionism is also really fucking incoherent. And it just doesn't work on some level. So Richard has a preference for coherence because he's high verbal IQ. He has philosophical leanings. So if an ideology or a movement or an individual is incoherent, then for Richard, that's you know, a really bad thing. But given how complicated reality is, what is seemingly incoherent is is frequently the most coherent response. So that's another area where I differ from from Richard and, and from those who believe that we can primarily be strategic. Right? It helps to be strategic. We have some capacity for being strategic, but still we're operating in a body which has all sorts of imperious urges. We're operating in comp- you know, complex situations, the, the world around us is, is changing. So, yeah, I'm all for strategizing, but we can't be, you know, dominantly strategic. Like, we, we get, the world is too fast, events are happening too fast. We're going to constantly be reacting from, from parts of ourselves which are prior to coherent, you know, prefrontal cortex contemplation. And, and so, for, for Richard and for, for secular people in general, the secular humanists, the, 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 the liberals, the leftists, right? They, they have this great, great belief that we can kind of separate ourselves from subjective interpretations of reality, subjective interpretations of ourselves, and that we can kind of stand outside, you know, all these you know, traditional modes of meaning, uh, religious commitments, uh, traditional folkways, subjective you know, interpretations of things, and we can just stand outside the, uh, the given order in which we find ourselves and just rationally, disinterestedly, strategically navigate. But life comes at us, you know, way too fast. You don't really have time when you're driving down the freeway at 60 miles an hour to, you know, strategically react to everything that comes your way. In fact, you'll frequently drive home from work and not remember anything because you were just kind of zoned out the whole time. You were just operating on, you know, reactions that were prior to rational contemplation. So I think that's a more realistic understanding of human nature. We have some moderate capacity for being strategic, but it is limited by all these other forces. So the traditionalist, the trad, the right winger understands that the human being is not basically good, is not basically rational, has limited opportunities for strategizing, but instead, from a traditional perspective, we're born immersed in a tribe or should be born into a tribe. And we get our cues from our tribe. We get our understanding of reality from our tribe. We get our moral value system, our hero system from our tribe. And there's, there's no way around that. Even if you leave your tribe and you start subscribing to 
you know, a secular, modern, left-wing, liberal perspective on life. You're just adopting another partisan perspective on life that is constantly imbuing reality with all sorts of subjective meanings. You can't escape that. So people on the left and, and moderns think that they're often being strategic and disinterested and, and above the, the traditional conceptions of there's this external order of things to which we must cohere. But the left-wing secular perspective on life is similarly partisan and imbued with subjective meanings. You can never escape having a hero system and just having automatic meanings that you give to life, largely determined by the community that you choose to associate with. So, for example, when when marriage, meaning of marriage, was changed, right, that was felt by those who hold a traditional conception of marriage being between men and women, that felt like a very severe psychic injury, like the whole their whole understanding of the world and of marriage and of men and women was was devastated, was injured, as opposed to people on the, the modern left liberal side, you know, they celebrated because they've managed to give a whole new meaning and effectively they have you know, made tremendous progress in destroying the whole concept of marriage by initially you know, painting things, oh, this is gay marriage, we just want those, those traditional values that, that straights have, but really what the, the agenda is is to completely destroy marriage and destroy the nuclear family. You, you, you aren't all on the same team. Like, those people, you know, in Israel who you love and are dedicated to, they literally rejected your God, and they will literally be burning in hell, you know, for it. You, you, you can't, I mean, you could conceivably support Zionism or something like that, but, like, it, there's this deep incoherency and contradiction of, like, Christian, uh, Christian Zionism. It does not make sense. You are not dedicated to them. God, in your own mind, they, like, their status as a chosen people shouldn't really still be operative. Like, they failed. They had the chance. Jesus was talking to them. They had the chance to embrace All right, so here's Richard taking a very literal, theological, philosophical approach to the meaning of Christianity, but Christianity just doesn't have, you know, one objective, theoretical, theological, philosophical meaning. The, the meaning of Christianity changes depending upon time and circumstance, just as my outlook on life changes depending on time and circumstances. I react differently. I speak differently. I think differently. All right, I do everything differently when I, not everything, but I do many things differently when I simply change situations, change locations. All right, the things that concern me when I lived in Los Angeles, they are of much less concern to me in Tenancents. <laughs> right? So you simply change location, change time, the things that concern me at age 56, right? very different than the things that concern me at age 26. But you know, Richard you know, thinks that things like Christianity have these eternal, unchanging, uh, theological, religious you know, essences, which is not true. Christianity, up until about the 19th century, was heavily nationalistic. It, it, it marched right in alignment with, with the state. The state found Christianity you know, excellent for perpetuating the power of the state, for unifying a people, and for, for swelling the sentiments of nationalism. After the 19th century, particularly into the 20th century, you know, Christianity changed to become more, much more of a force opposed to nationalism, particularly after World War II. But Christianity is not one unchanging essence, neither is Judaism Neither are you or I. It's their prophecy. And they rejected it. No, I, I think Christianity is kind of like un, uh, uh, unendingly Jewish in some way. I mean, I, I totally would agree with that statement. But it does have this peculiar antagonism. Like, you cannot go that far with the Christian stuff and not end up denouncing Jews. You just can't and remain coherent. And I think people like Nick kind of picked up. It depends on the situation, 
right? Yeah, there's inherently a tension between Jews and, and Christians, that just as there's inherently a tension between the English and the French. But the English and the French haven't gone to war with each other on a large-scale basis for, what, 300 years? So when the situations change, the English and the French have more often been allies than enemies over, over the past 300 years. Now, the whole English and French unitary political systems were developed to enable each other to go to war with the other. Right? That's how the system developed. And Christianity developed in large part as a reaction to both Roman power, like try to present you know, a, a picture of this new, new movement that would, that would work within the Roman context and in reaction to Jews and Judaism. And from about the second or third century until the 18th century, Jewish and Christian fortunes tended to go in opposite directions. Right? The better things were for Christians, the worse things were for Jews. The better things were for Jews, the worse things were for Christians. But then, starting in the 18th century with the rise of the Enlightenment, the fortunes of Jews and Christians started rising and falling together because now their primary opponent became an increasingly secular and atheist world. So there are inherent tensions between different racial, ethnic, religious groups, just as there are inherent tensions between Jews, Christians, and, and Islam. So Christianity, like all new religions, never saw itself as a new religion. It saw itself as the fulfillment, the culmination of, of Judaism. Uh, Jews did not think that way. So, yeah, there was an inherent uh, tension between them, the inherent conflict. But how that conflict will express itself will depend upon time and circumstance. Is that the primary conflict that you have to pay attention to when you're locked in a back alley in a fight for your life? No other conflict matters to you. So we're often limited in, in the number of conflicts that we can pay attention to. Here's, here's an analogy that I got from, from the New Yorker that, that would apply to our lives. So imagine you've got a stovetop with four burners, and one burner represents friendship. One burner represents family. Uh, one burner represents your career. And one burner represents your health. Now. With, with this particular stovetop, you can't have all four burners running full bore at the same time. Right? You can really only, if you want to succeed, you can really only run two burners full bore. So most people between 20 and 50, they are primarily about their family and about their work. And so friends and health often get sacrificed in the pursuit of their family and, and their work. Uh, sometimes, if you really, really want to succeed, you can only keep one burner going full bore. So for some people, they make their career the most important thing. Everything else suffers. Some people make family the most important thing. Everything else suffers. Some people make you know, their health the number one thing, and every other thing suffers. Or some people, obviously, oh, oh, friendships. So normally, people fill up their lives with family and kin. Then if there's room left over, right, they they make more and more room for friends. If you don't have many family or kin in your life, so I live in America and I have no family and no kin living in America. So I have abundant room. I have this great, 
you know, gaping chasm inside for, for friendship that I, I feel with, with, with friendship. If I lived in Australia, like Tenham Sands, where I walk around and there are streets named after my mother, my auntie, my, my uncle, my mother's side of my family, my, my grandfather, meaning my mother's father, he owned 80% of habitable Tenham Sands uh, 60 years ago. So I have, you know, generations of my family in this area, right? I'd spend much more time with family if I lived you know, in Australia, if I lived in Tenham Sands or lived in, in Sydney. I think there was some quite a point that I was making there. Uh, Wayland says, if you're constantly trying to be optical, you'll only lead by being led by those opposed to your ideas. Optics are good, but they are just a tool. Stay in your lane, pedal to the metal, says, says the chat up on that where they're like all right let's you know let's bring some little kevin mcdonald into this cocktail like you know let's 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 spice it up a little bit and really kind of like fulfill the logic within this and they're not you know like genocidally anti-jewish I, I think they genuinely want jews to convert to christianity that is the right thing that's what they want and i think that they believe that jews would be fundamentally changed by doing that um but you know it, it's it, it kind of had to end up that way and i don't know maybe there's a, a bit of an opening for like the old trump of uh uh, you know, the Trump of 2016, we like, n none of us cared about this. We, we all were just kind of like, we don't care about the fucking like gay marriage issue. You know, Let, let's like secure the border right now. You know, that's, that's how we thought. Plenty of people care about the gay marriage issue, right? There was no possible path forward to reverse the decision, but people still care about it. May not be a winning political issue right now, but uh, for anyone with any traditional leanings, Defining marriage as uh, being between two men or two women is it, it's experienced by anyone with traditional leanings as a psychic wound. Oh, that's how we talked. And a lot of that got lost at some point. And it no longer was really about like a, a racial issue. It was no longer certainly about immigration. It was no longer about old populism even. It, it was a religious movement at the end. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, ultimately, these Christian nationalists are, are, are still like kind of surfing Trump's wake. So in other yes, words, no doubt. yeah, and ultimately, uh, you know. Well, uh, Donald Trump is, you know, sure seems like the, the most secular <laughs> anti-Christian president given, given his lifestyle, but he very smartly marketed himself to Christians with the, the sentence, if I'm elected, Christianity will have power, right? He, he ran on that and he delivered on that. And so he didn't have to say all the Christian platitudes. He said Christianity will have power, and that's exactly what happened. And that's why he retained the overwhelming support of uh, evangelical Christians. So if you give people what you, they want, what they most want, don't necessarily need to you know, say the platitudes that they like to hear. Racialism is, you know, whether explicit or implicit, and it's been implicit, of course, it's been implicit and not explicit, but... Um, that uh that's the sort of that's the host or that's the big thing that everyone wants to get on and and christians christian nationalists need that but it doesn't need them ultimately you know what i'm saying yeah. and in fact if, if it features them too saliently they become a liability right yes um, because then, then it just goes to crazy town um so and i think tr trump had the uh, kind of uh the perfect formula when he ran of course you know what i mean it, and it, it was the kind of perfect storm as it were um but his strategy i think was perfect in in uh 2016 um Okay, so we had a Republican arrested recently for ballot harvesting. Hey, then, the, um, uh, you notice after, um, I think I made a prediction that there would be a ballot 
harvesting scandal. Well, the day after I'm uh, in our last episode, the day after I made that prediction, there was a ballot harvesting scandal. I meant to mention that along with a small one in Rensselaer, New York. One guy pled guilty. But the mm -hmm. point is, the incentive to cheat is pervasive and it goes to the lowest levels where it can't be tracked. So some guy wandering to the election office with the ballots he's harvested just happens to drop the ones from the Democratic or Republican district in a trash can. Gee, how do you trace that? You don't. So, um, you know, occasionally they catch people at low levels and they indict them and they plead guilty. Uh, they, I expect a steady drumbeat of these things. And luckily it was a Republican scandal. Good. Republican pled guilty. So that means the Democratic press might be interested in reporting us. Who knows? Oh. Okay. Well. Okay. That's uh, worth keeping an eye on. I'm unaware of any evidence that uh, voter fraud plays a significant role in American elections over the past uh, 40 years, the major American elections. I think there was a House of Representative election that had to be rerun because of uh, uh, voter fraud. But uh, generally speaking, I side with the conventional wisdom that uh, voter fraud is not one of the most uh, pressing issues confronting the nation. Right, let's get a little bit more here from- That, that was, Rogers, I haven't even bothered to really do the research, but this is recommended by Peter Beiner. Okay, here's the tweet. Okay, let me- Four. He knocked them up? Because I'm going yeah, to have to get critical here. What, what, what did she say? But I forget what she said. I forget. I don't think anything. He, went, he, was, he, he went off in that direction. Uh, trying to cure everything up. Which exactly. is probably a mistake. Exactly. No, no, that's the classic American okay. brunch place. I wonder it's if it's so, still there. It's so gay. It's like totally it's gay. gay. Oh, it was, 17th Street. Maybe he didn't want to go to a gay place. You ever have the oh, cheese he's steak? A he's a politician. Ever have the trio cheese steak, Mickey? No, I love the trio, but but is a greasy is a gay greasy spoon. So it's like, may, may not be what, he, was, he, he went off in that direction, so he's still alive. So he, he survived the trio. Uh, talking about the former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, Mickey Couch ran into him in Washington, D.C., and the former prime minister asked Mickey, where could he get eggs for, for breakfast? And so Mickey directed him to this uh, gay, greasy spoon. Trio is uh, exactly where you should have sent him. Okay. Um, Good work. Um, uh, I wonder if it's still there. I don't know. Uh, um, I mean, I wonder what the character of 17th Street is now. Do you realize how far east the gentrification has expanded? Yes. It's crazy. Anyway. Yeah. You had some SBF angle. No, uh, that was a tiny, that, that was, I, I haven't even bothered to really do the research, but this is recommended by Peter Beinert. Okay, here's the tweet that Peter Beinert said, check this out, like it's worth your time or now something. I know, now I know who you take orders from. Well, Peter has, you know, he's a responsible citizen. It, I take it, orders from Steve Miller, you take orders from Peter Beinert. That yeah. does everything about us. I, I don't, I don't apologize for that. He's, uh, so anyway, it's a tweet from Max Berger. I should know that name, right? Is there a Max Berger whose name I should you know? You should, but I, I don't know, I forget why. Anyway, he just says, I spent some time looking into SBF's political giving and what I found was pretty shocking. SBF was collaborating with APAC and Trump and Trump supporting billionaires to stop the growth of the squad and the electoral left. Now, I haven't looked into this deeply. He's got a, it's maxberger.substack.com if you want to look into this, which I haven't. The headline is SBF and the Injustice Democrats. But I think the idea is that a lot of the money that he spent uh, on Democratic candidates was to influence the outcome of Democratic primaries. And apparently among the people he sounds like, among the people he didn't want winning were uh, people critical of Israel. Well, if, he's, if, if he is pro-Israel, that adds a new dimension uh, to uh, what we know about him. And it's a dimension that would tend to be downplayed by the press because it feeds into an anti-Semitic trope, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that's very interesting. I don't know if it's true or not, but it'd be interesting if it's true. Speaking of that, there was uh, some tweeter. Uh, if the profile picture was accurate, uh, she was like a black woman who had like, I think, a lot of followers. I mean, I think she was somebody prominent, but I hadn't heard of her. And uh, she got kind of widely accused of anti-Semitism, which I thought was kind of a rush to judgment because what she did was she said, it's like, you know, about Sam Bankman-Fried, sometime after the scandal broke, it's like, wow, you can tell a lot from a name, can't you? And the guy's name is Bankman. 
And freed looks like fried. I mean, you could be thinking a lot of things, but, but the first thing I thought was Sounds myself. Like fraud. Exactly. That's the first thing I thought of as the joke, the obvious joke. Now, she didn't say that, but I mean, people were acting like there was no possibility that she meant it innocent. I don't know, Bob. I'm the least sensitive to anti-Semitism. Of, of but you say lock her most up. Pe- no, I think the most logical explanation was an anti-Semitic explanation, yeah. That's what I mean. You say lock her up. I don't know. Maybe I'm too lenient. But uh, since Bankman, you know, he was a Bankman, right? That occurred to me immediately. Freed, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think I, I wouldn't. I think you're. Uh, the other thing is no, but there's another. For a losing there's another. Here. There's another reason I say this is because those of us who didn't grow up on the East Coast uh, didn't grow up automatically knowing what a Jewish name is. When I was when I was 18 or 19, if you showed me the name Freed, I wouldn't. You know, and I don't know. Bankman is that a Jewish name? Freed, I now recognize often is, but Bankman is it? No, it's, it's not a common name. And my point is, this is. I think people, you know, people in, in all kind of cultural realms tend to overestimate the likelihood that other people grew up sharing their assumptions. And I'm just telling you, it's like, it turns out, I discovered after childhood that some of the people I'd known were Jewish, nobody pointed it out at the time. It's like, there was a girl in fifth grade. You know, one thing that happens when you are in the, uh, if your parents are in the military, sometimes you will encounter a kid twice in your life and separate. And in this case, it was in Virginia in fifth grade, Texas in, 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 uh, in ninth grade. And her last name was Weiss. And, and uh, for, for whatever reason, it became apparent to me in high school that she was Jewish. But when I was in fifth grade, nobody, you know, it, it just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have occurred to me. Whereas I think on the East Coast, it would have occurred to you, right? But like, if this person's a professor whose who's quotes get cited in the media, I guarantee you she knows what a Jewish name sounds like. Wait, uh, this person is what? This, this person is not a, a, somebody who is in your position in Texas. Whoever is accused of any semitism is a professor at a college. She knows what a Jewish name no, is. No, she's not a professor at a college. I, oh, I, thought she, I thought you said she was a professor. No, all I said is she's some person on Twitter who seemed to have a lot of followers. Oh. A person on Twitter who seems to have a lot of followers probably knows what a Jewish name is like, too. So, yeah, a lot of what is called racism or anti-Semitism is, uh, is not, is perhaps uh, just trying to deal with a very complicated world. And the, the reaction just doesn't fit into the Overton window and then gets blasted as you know, racist or anti-Semitic. Okay, Nathan Kopnis has come out with his magnum opus. That's his language, not mine. And it is called Still No Evidence for a Group Evolutionary Strategy. So this was uh, just uh, released in December, about uh, a month ago. So Nathan writes, I recently criticized some key tenets of what I call the anti-Jewish narrative, particularly as defended by Kevin McDonald. According to McDonald, Judaism is a group evolutionary strategy that led Jews to impose liberal multiculturalism on the West to advance their evolutionary interests at the expense of Gentiles. In light of Kevin McDonald's reply, I refine my previous arguments, address some popular misunderstandings, and discuss the root causes and consequences of anti-Semitism. I conclude that, contra to the anti-Jewish narrative, Jews are not particularly ethnocentric. Jewish intellectuals do not typically advocate liberal multiculturalism for Gentiles, but not for Jews, that Jews did not orchestrate the rise of liberalism or blank slatism in the West, and that anti-Semitism is not primarily a response to actual Jewish wrongdoing. So Nathan begins, the mainstream leftist narrative about race sees white supremacy as an all-controlling social force. So we're all tempted by magic keys, right? They're every week, effectively. I'm coming on here with some new magic key for for explaining reality. I just the last 48 hours I've been reading about ADHD and I think, oh my God, this this explains so much about my life and the challenges that I've had in my life. 
So the ADHD is my new magic key for understanding my own life. All right, so the mainstream narrative about race sees white supremacy as an all-controlling social force which is responsible for producing bad outcomes such as racial disparities. So, for example, if it is true that different peoples have different gifts, then we should not be surprised by racial or religious or ethnic uh, disparities. Right? When you watch NFL games, NFL players are about 80% black. Uh, NBA players are even, what, 90% black. Uh, the Premier League, the, the world's number one soccer league in England, is now about 40% black. Right? It, this rising percentage of blacks in the major sports these major sports is that you know the result of some kind of you know anti non-black you know mysterious force operating no it's you know it's obviously operating on merit now when it comes to selections for south africa's cricket team right south africa's cricket team mandates racial integration on the team so they do not get to select for the best cricket players in south africa which may be the reason why australia has just been thrashing South Africa in cricket this summer. So I'm in the Southern Hemisphere. It's currently summer here as Australia needs to get 14 wickets to complete a three-match sweep of South Africa. So Nathan writes, people who reject this left-wing narrative sometimes gravitate to an alternative anti-Jewish narrative which blames Jews for outcomes disliked by those on the right, such as liberalism and mass immigration. So we're all susceptible to the lure of, of magic key thinking. So if you're on the left, you think the magic key is you know, racism, that uh, white animus against non-whites you know, explains the world around us. If you're on the right, you may very well be seduced by thinking that uh, Jewish influence is the magic key for explaining the world around us. So here's Kafkas. So people who reject the left-wing narrative sometimes gravitate to an alternative anti-Jewish narrative which blames Jews for outcomes disliked by those on the right, such as liberalism and mass migration. Perhaps the most prominent defender of the anti-Jewish narrative is Kevin McDonald, now a retired professor of psychology at California State University, Long Beach, who has been described as the marks of the anti-Semites. According to Kevin McDonald, Judaism is a group evolutionary strategy, and Jews imposed liberal multiculturalism on the West to advance their own evolutionary interests at the expense of Gentiles. So Nathan Kaufness argued that advocates of both the anti-white supremacy and anti-Jewish narratives employ similarly biased reasoning. They ignore, misrepresent facts that go against the narrative. So that's one way that I try to understand the world around me when I can see the propaganda of a particular presentation, whether it be in writing or orally, and then that piece of propaganda contains facts that oppose the propaganda, then those facts are probably true, right? We wouldn't normally include you know, inconvenient facts in our presentation that go against the, the ideological point we're trying to make if they are not true. So one way that uh, New Testament scholars try to understand what really happened in the events alluded to or mythologized in the New Testament is to look for those incidents and, and that go against the tendance, the, the tendency of the narrative. So McDonald says people who push the anti-Jewish and anti-white supremacy narratives tend to ignore, misrepresent, 
facts that go against the narrative. They trumpet a small number of exceptional narrative supporting incidents as if they represent a general trend. So Barbara Lerner Spector says that Jews will, will play an important role in Europe becoming more multicultural unless Europe becomes multicultural, that's not going to survive. And this was you know, trumpeted throughout the, the distant right as evidence of you know, the nefarious nature of Jews. But uh, Barbara Lerner Spector doesn't have any power. Right? She's, she's just a Jew in Sweden running a very small non-governmental organization, just sharing her opinions. And they reject more reasonable explanations for the phenomena they seek to explain. So, yeah, if you have a more accurate, more predictive and more simple explanation for what's going on, that's more likely to be the accurate one. I challenge three te key tenets of the anti-Jewish narrative. This is Kevin Kauf Nathan Kaufman's writing, which have been defended by Kevin McDonald. A, that Jews are highly ethnocentric. B, liberal Jews hypocritically advocate different policies for Jews and Israel as opposed to Gentiles and Gentile countries. And C, Jews are responsible for liberalism and mass immigration to the United States. I reiterated my thesis of the best explanation for Jewish overrepresentation in the leadership of liberal political and intellectual movements is the default hypothesis that Jews are overrepresented in such leadership positions for the same reasons that they are overrepresented in almost all non-anti-Jewish cognitively demanding activities, primarily high mean intelligence. Ken McDonald's reply exhibits the same biased style of reasoning that characterizes both the anti-white supremacy and anti-Jewish literature. So in this paper, Kaufman writes, I further develop my arguments in light of McDonald's critique. I address some popular misunderstandings of the default hypothesis, and I discuss the root causes and consequences of anti-Semitism. Let me return here to Robert Wright talking with Mickey Kaus. I, I, I think, I really think you're, you're bringing too much of your own background to bear on this. Uh, I'm the, I say, I say, if I say something's anti-Semitic. It's anti, this case closed. <laughs> What's the equivalent of that for me? What is it like, uh, what am I, what am I the, the, the last word on? Like if um, I say somebody is, is uh, not in the or something? I have no empathy for that person. They're a bad person and we should I think it, it's fight a, them aggressively. If I say somebody's not in the blob, they're not in the blob. Right. Um, so Jason DePaul had this uh, strange article on, Two positive trends. Uh, Jay DePaul is like a, a, a reporter on the Times, one of their best reporters because he gives both sides their shake. Uh, he wrote a very good book on welfare, a really good book on welfare that sort of gets better and better the more I think about it. Uh, where he went to Milwaukee and basically, it's the, sort of the book into Nicholas Lemon's book on the Promised Land. He actually talks about hap what happened when they reformed welfare, uh, busts a few stereotypes, um, and, and, and in general comes to a conclusion that it was a positive thing. But you know, it's a mixed bag. Uh, he wrote a book on. He, he wrote an article recently on. The decline in teen births and early early childbearing, which has mm -hmm. been a big trend, huge trend, started in the early '90s, continues and has been accelerating in recent decades. So, it's but this is a big positive trend. So, in distant circles, really, all you hear about are the trends that are negative, that you know everything's going to hell, America's falling apart. But there are a lot of positive trends going on in the world and in America, such as a decline in teenage births. It's basically not a problem anymore, really. Uh, to hear him tell it, yeah. So teenage pregnancy increasingly rare. All right, back to Nathan Kofnitz here. He writes, my most recent exchange with Kevin McDonald was published in the Israeli philosophy journal Philosophia. Philosophia was one of the few respectable journals in the field that had a reputation for publishing defenses of genuinely controversial ideas. However, the day after Kevin McDonald's paper appeared online, 
journal's associate editor resigned in protest and called for retraction. Philosophy blogger Justin Weinberg ran a post attacking the editor-in-chief Asa Kaysher, Ken McDonald, and me. Weinberg contacted the journal's publisher, Springer, in an apparent effort to initiate a retraction. Kasher immediately apologized for publishing both papers, and in July 2022, Kevin McDonald's reply was officially retracted, although the full text is still available online with a note retracted article printed across every page. Despite his craven apology, Kasher lost his position as editor-in-chief. Nathan says, I vigorously and publicly oppose censoring Kevin McDonald besides the issue of free speech. Silencing one side of a debate does not make the other side appear more credible. If anything, it has the opposite effect. Nietzsche refers to the world historical stupidity of all persecutors who give their opponents the appearance of honorableness and bestow on them the fascination of martyrdom. However, while censorship is unfortunate, may inspire sympathy, should not necessarily be taken as evidence of the correctness of the censored views. So, what about the trajectory of people like Stefan Molyneux, who seem to have completely dropped out of public discussion since they were removed from major social media? I don't think getting censored uh, is necessarily the leading force in someone dropping out of public discussion. I think it's how one responds to being censored. So I haven't seen all or almost any of Stefan Molyneux's content over the past three years, but I'm going to wager if he has dropped out of public discussion, it's because he has not produced content that is particularly relevant or important to ideas being discussed publicly, because he still is producing content on his free domain website and on Odyssey and other uh, dissident sources. So he's pumping out content, but a lot of people, when they encounter a setback, it's just absolutely devastating for them. They just absolutely crumble. Uh, some people are just brilliant in certain circumstances. Those circumstances change and they become a mediocrity. And much of one's success in live streaming comes from uh, charisma, which is the sense that you, you, you give energy to people. People tune in, they get energized by watching you and listening to you. And then the live streamer gets energy from the number and the quality of the people who tune in and the discussion that ensues. So the more energy and enthusiasm the live streamer has, the more people watch, the more people watch, get energized. You've got this beneficial cycle going that, that propels charisma. Another explanation of charisma is that it's the appearance that someone's doing something that's impossible, that they are you know, creating something unprecedented and so more and more people tune in to see someone doing the impossible. As more people tune in, the live streamer doing the seeming impossible gets more energy from the number of people who tune in, gets more money. He gets more feedback as his audience grows, his confidence grows. And so you've got this virtuous cycle building back and forth until eventually he implodes. So it's, it's hard to sustain a live streaming career. Right. People tend to shine brightly for a few months and then th their career just tends to implode if it is primarily based on charisma. So here's Nathan Koftis writing about group evolutionary strategy versus the default hypothesis. Kevin MacDonald argues in his three books on Judaism, the people that shall dwell alone. Uh, what was the third one? Well, I'm blanking on the names, but uh, Culture of Critique was the third one. So he published these three books. Uh, the final books were published in 1998. 
uh, arguing that Judaism is a group evolutionary strategy. He argued that Jewish intellectuals promote liberalism to undermine Gentile societies and advance the evolutionary interests of Jews. He says that Jews were a necessary condition for the triumph of the intellectual left in late in 20th century Western societies. So Kafnis came back with the default hypothesis to explain Jewish overrepresentation in the leadership of liberal intellectual movements. I think, uh, who's the psychologist at Harvard University? Steven Pinker may have come up with the name default hypothesis, though the ideas behind default hypothesis came from Nathan Kofnis. Is that a water bottle or some weird Aussie beverage? Well, this is obviously not my water bottle. I'm traveling, so I am I am adapting and taking you know many other people's water bottles and more when I'm on the road. So now I normally don't a swig out of a you know very feminine water bottle but uh, circumstances have changed I have to adapt to changing circumstances it's much better than having an open cup that I can knock over it doesn't provide me with all the hydration that I need so Kopner says Jews are overrepresented primarily because of high average IQ and secondarily because of their concentration in influential urban areas that allow them to capitalize on their effort so in and of itself how much would high average IQ among Ashkenazi Jews account for disproportionate Jewish representation? It seems to me something like 50%, 60% is accounted for simply by high average IQs. Jewish political influence has skewed left in recent history, mainly because right-wing movements have been disproportionately anti-Semitic. Jews have been overrepresented in virtually all non-overtly anti-Semitic intellectual activities. Despite being a fraction of 1% of the world population, Jews have been 44% of world chess champions. So you don't get to be a world chess champion by uh, ethnic networking. 25% of Fields medalists, meaning Fields, the Fields medal is a medal given for the you know, great new mathematician. So again, you don't get a Fields medal by ethnic networking. They're 24% of winners of Japan's Kyoto Prize. Obviously, the people who decide Japan's Kyoto Prize are overwhelmingly not Jewish. It's not something you can attain just by ethnic networking. Jews comprise 26% of Nobel laureates in physics, 26% in physiology or medicine, 39% in economics, 19% in chemistry, 14% in literature, 8% in the Nobel Peace Prize. So some have suggested that the high number of Nobel Prizes awarded to Jews reflects Jewish influence over the selection process rather than the merits of the laureates. It's worth noting that Jews are considerably more likely to win prizes in the sciences which have relatively objective standards of accomplishment rather than in peace and literature. So this is the opposite of what we would expect if Jewish nepotism was a significant factor. Also difficult for the nepotism theory to explain is the fact that Jews win the Japan-based Kyoto Prize at roughly the same rate they win the Western-based Nobel Prize and Fields Medal. So many of the most prominent figures in art business and politics are Jewish. With respect to politics, Jews are frequently the leaders of movements with radically opposing aims, such as libertarianism and socialism. But the default hypothesis says that Jews are overrepresented in liberal intellectual movements for the same reason they are overrepresented in other intellectual activities. I argue that the evidence, in fact, supports the default rather than the group evolutionary strategy hypothesis. And Kevin McDonald admitted that the group evolutionary strategy hypothesis didn't provide either you know, predictive or particularly explanatory power. So 
Koftas explicitly stated that Ashkenazi Jewish IQ, which is something like 110 to 112 on average, as opposed to the average European, which is around 100, or the average Eastern Asian is around 105, it's not enough to explain Jewish achievement in and of itself. Koftas suggested that besides a geographic advantage, so Jews tend to disproportionately live in large urban areas where you're going to have much more influence on public policy than if you're living in remote country areas. Kaufner suggested personality traits could also play a role in Jewish success. So there may be more effective and less effective personalities. So if you're highly introverted, you're less likely to be an effective personality. If you're low in conscientiousness, you're less likely to be an effective personality. If you're low in openness, less likely to be an effective personality. If you're very low in agreeableness, you're less likely to be an effective personality. Uh, if you're high in neuroticism, you're less likely to be an effective personality. So an effective personality is going to be someone extroverted, someone open to new experiences, highly conscientious, low in neuroticism, and you know, moderate to mild in agreeableness. Getting back to Nathan Kaufness, says Glib Medley, it's like completing the reading of the Talmud and starting over. Hazak, hazak, that's what we say. Strength to strength when you, when you uh, start, start going through the, the new Torah reading cycle or the new Dapyomi uh, Talmud reading cycle. Okay, so there may be no better friend to the Jews than our friend Ricardo, and he says... I don't normally care for politicians' speeches, but this one from Representative Rosendale yesterday was amazing. Sad to watch 90% of the GOP representatives not applaud when he speaks. Just goes to show how corrupt the vast majority of both parties have become. Now let's take a look at this uh, speech here that Ricardo uh, finds so amazing. For what purpose does the gentleman from Montana rise? Thank you very much, Madam Clerk. I would like to nominate the name of Byron Donalds to Speaker of the House of Representatives. The gentleman is recognized. Let me begin by stating that it is an absolute privilege to be here standing and serving with each and every one of you. I know we have differences of opinions, and I know we have differences of agendas that we would like to pursue. But I will tell you that we all are representing the United States of America in the best fashion that I know that we truly believe in. So thank you, and it is a privilege. When I walk out every evening from the Longworth office building, I will tell you that as I look back on the Capitol with the lights gleaming upon it, that I recognize the honor, the privilege, and the responsibility that each one of us has taken on to be in this place that we are right now. And the obligations that we have to the districts that we represent back home. It is an incredible privilege, but it is also an incredible responsibility. And I do not take it lightly, and I know that no one in this room does. We are participating in a system that has endured 200 and 47 years through drought and through flood, through world wars, and through a mental abilities which may be genetically or culturally transmitted that contribute to success in any given domain. So Jews, particularly Ashkenazi Jews, are subject to evolutionary selection pressures like every other people, right? And 
the ability to succeed in white collar professions and Talmud study, right? That's going to favor higher general intelligence. So the same selection pressures would have favored non-G traits as well and abilities that contribute to success in business and or scholarship. So some of these traits and abilities may not be measured by IQ tests and the achievements of East Asians testify to this. So in America, East Asians outstrip whites in socioeconomic status far beyond what would be predicted based on their most moderate IQ advantage. So the essence of the Nathan Carpenter, Steven Pinker default hypothesis is not that IQ specifically explains Jewish overrepresentation, but that the same factors explain Jewish overrepresentation in intellectual activities across the board. Jews are not overrepresented in chess, physics, computer science, literature, and the leadership of the libertarian movement for one reason, such as cognitive ability, and overrepresented in the leadership of liberal intellectual movements for a completely different reason, group evolutionary strategy. Since IQ is not sufficient to explain Jewish overrepresentation in the former activities, the default hypothesis predicts it will not be sufficient to explain it in the latter either. So I am very excited. This stream is now conceptual art. <laughs> Look, we don't hear you. Look, no, he's still muted. Ah! Secular jihadi Groper says, Nathan Kaufner's rigor reminds me of humanities types. He is a philosopher. So who does the best silence? I've seen this before. I think it's a bit, who is like talking to? I was an idiot. I screwed up. That's the explanation. So uh, philosophy graduate students on average compared to any other academic department have the highest verbal IQs. Just when it gets potential, stream goes mute. Boomer look. And I'm honored to have Virtual Pilgrim here. Uh, so very, very smart comments in the chat. Virtual, in the, in the comments to many of my videos, Virtual Pilgrim says, Stephen Crowder says, America is not a people, it's an idea. I am not an idea. Yeah. So go to the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, right? The whole, whole point of this Constitution is for ourselves and for our posterity. So people though approach this issue as though saying America is an idea, one is saying that it's nothing else, right? So to steel man the argument that America is an idea would be to say, yes, America is a particular people, America is a state, America is, is a nation, uh, America is perhaps an empire, and on top of all that, <clears throat> America is an idea. So people don't always say what they mean or try to give you know, a comprehensive overview. So you can have a nationalism that is based on ideas, right? And in certain times and places, like right now, it is much more socially acceptable to articulate an ideological type of nationalism. But there may be other strands to your nationalism that it is less socially acceptable to articulate, which may be much more powerful in your nationalism, but you're incentivized not to articulate them. So your nationalism may be based on racial, ethnic, kinship, religious ties, but you just articulate the ideological component of nationalism because that's the articulation that is most incentivized. So just because someone believes in, say, a kinship-based version of nationalism, does not believe they 
do not also believe in the religious and possibly ideological component of nationalism. Just because you believe in civic nationalism and you don't say anything about kinship-based nationalism doesn't believe you don't strongly doesn't show that you don't strongly believe in kinship-based nationalism. It just simply may represent that at this particular time and place, standing up publicly for kinship-based nationalism is heavily disincentivized. So a kinship-based nationalism is not contradicted by overviews of you know above ground articulations of, of you know, ideological nationalism or religious-inspired nationalism. And just because you argue for, say, you know, Christian nationalism does not mean that you don't recognize the importance of kinship-based nationalism. That's simply not a type of nationalism that you're incentivized to articulate right now. Wow, I was muted for like five minutes, ten minutes. I'm just, I apologize, that was disrespectful to you. Luke rationally entertains the Kevin McDonald argument, so does Nathan Kofnitz, because it is well-developed. They just disagree with it. Okay, so I'm going to catch my breath. Is that just going to sit in the humiliation of muting myself for five, ten minutes and uh, play this speech that... Uh, Ricardo loves. To equally represent each of the 435 districts across this nation have become diminished. This through the consolidation of power into the hands of the speaker and a fortunate few who happen to serve on the rules committee, which control every aspect of legislation that travels through this body. The debate and the discussion has been all but eliminated, and the balance of us are left to vote yes or no. Those are our options, and that is what has led to the disintegration of the relationships that we see across this floor. That is not equal representation, which is guaranteed by our Constitution and expected by our constituents. We have had more discussion and debate over the last three days than I have participated in on this floor for the last two years. And it's healthy. It absolutely promotes the collegiality that everyone is striving to obtain. We're having discussions not just within our own party, but amongst each other as we walk. Yeah, sometimes it's best to mute disagreements or to ignore disagreements. Sometimes it's better to get them out in the open. And it's not like one strategy is inherently better than the other. Depends on circumstance, depends on the individual's concern, and I think it's a disaster for Republicans that they've had, you know, this this week of, of conflict over Kevin McCarthy. All right, back to Nathan Kofnis here. Kevin McDonald points out that Jews in the West act differently from overseas Chinese and Southeast Asia, 
which he apparently sees as evidence that Judaism is a group evolutionary strategy, whereas there has been a strong trend for American Jews to have a very, have a very large influence on the media. The creation of culture, information in the social sciences and humanities in the political process. This has not happened with the overseas Chinese in Southeast Asia, despite their dominating position in the economies of the region and their high average IQ. The overseas Chinese have not formed a cultural elite in Southeast Asian countries and not concentrated their efforts on media ownership or the construction of an adversarial culture. But again, the default hypothesis that is Kafnis does not claim that IQ is the only determinant of behavior. There are obvious reasons why Jews and overseas Chinese would act differently. So in Southeast Asia, uh, the diaspora Chinese are known as the, the, Jews of, the, the Jews of Asia. First, there are profound cultural differences between the West and Asia. The West has a strong tradition, which goes back to the enlightenment of intense public debate about questions concerning political philosophy and human nature. So an American was hosting a, a, someone from Japan and they were watching the McLaughlin Group. And the American asked him, are there shows like the McLaughlin Group in Japan? And the Japanese person said, no, you know, we basically have consensus on everything. But in the West, you know, intense public debate about ultimate questions is who we are, right? And these debates were initiated by European Gentiles, though later Jews became important participants. People from traditional societies, which include most Chinese and from cultures with strong kinship-based institutions, tend to be much more collective and conformist, and they do not have this tradition of debate. Second, there are significant differences in the psychometric profiles of Jews and Chinese. Yeah, different groups have different gifts. Jewish intelligence is more verbal. Chinese intelligence is more spatial. On average, Jews have lower spatial reasoning ability than white Gentiles, which is why we're frequently surprised when, say, a Jew enjoys, you know, working on car mechanics. Jews tend to have much higher verbal ability. Since people gain political and cultural influence mainly with words, verbally tilted Jews in the West are bound to have more influence in these domains than spatially tilted Chinese in Southeast Asia. So in America, East Asians, including the Chinese, are wildly overrepresented at the highest levels in STEM, in science, but they have not come close to attaining the cultural influence of Jews. Kevin McDonald should have no problem accepting this point since he himself has said essentially the same thing. According to Kevin McDonald, back in 1998, Jews will not be outcompeted by Asians for social status, not only because their mean IQ is higher, but more importantly because Jewish IQ is skewed towards excelling in verbal skills. The high IQ of East Asians is skewed toward performance IQ, which makes them powerful competitors in engineering and technology. Jews and East Asians are thus likely to occupy different niches in contemporary politics. Right? That's Kevin MacDonald, 1998. So the observed Jewish-Chinese differences are exactly what we should expect based on their different suites of abilities, and they pose no challenge for the default hypothesis. Jewish ethnocentrism. So a core tenet of the anti-Jewish narrative is that Jews are more ethnocentric and concerned with racial purity than white Gentiles. Kevin MacDonald writes in several places in all three of my books on Judaism, I developed the view that Europeans are relatively less ethnocentric than other people and relatively more prone to individualism as opposed to the ethnocentric collectivist social structures historically far more characteristic of other human groups, including Jews. Jewish ethnocentrism is ultimately simple traditional human ethnocentrism, although it is certainly among the more extreme varieties. So when I was in starting therapy, my therapist asked me how close was, is your family? And I said, we're about average for white people because I noticed that 
compared to Asians and co compared to Persians, that uh, you know, my family was much more individualist, uh, much less collectivist. So Kevin McDonald says that his basic proposal is that Judaism can be interpreted as a set of ideological structures and behaviors that are resorted in four features, the first of which is the segregation of the Jewish gene pool from surrounding Gentile societies. Now, intermarriage with a Gentile is equivalent to defection from the group. Kevin McDonald wrote in 1998, he says that contemporary Western Jewish groups often go to great lengths to discourage intermarriage. Judaism continues to show extraordinary theological flexibility in achieving the goal of legitimizing the continuation of Jewish group identity and genetic separatism. Important consequence of the Jewish-driven cultural changes, one likely to have been an underlying motivating factor in the counter-cultural revolution, and it may well be to facilitate the continued genetic distinctiveness of the Jewish gene pool in the United States. Ken McDonald, writes Kopnis, now refers to my erroneous assumption that the anti-Jewish narrative depends on showing that Jews in general are ethnocentric. Ken McDonald now insists that relatively high rates of intermarriage serve Jewish interests. Is this consistent with his previous statements quoted above? Uh, obviously not. So uh, if you're an ethnic nationalist and you know, a majority of your ethnicity are marrying outgroups, Right. I don't know how you would see that as serving your ethnic group's interests. So a Pew Research Survey in 2013 found that 50% of Reformed Jews and 70% of unaffiliated Jews report being married to a non-Jew. It's likely that the rate of intermarriage among Reformed Jews is now much higher than 70%. So basically, outside of Orthodox Jews in America, Jews marry non-Jews about 70% of the time. Gentiles who marry Reformed Jews frequently undergo nominal conversions that are not valid according to traditional Jewish law. Not only are liberal Jews intermarrying themselves out of existence, they are doing so with the enthusiastic support of liberal Jewish leaders. Contrary to false claims by Ken McDonald, the Reformed Jewish establishment actively promotes intermarriage and conversion, especially interracial conversion, and the Reform rabbinate sees the racial diversification of the Jewish community as a major priority. So the Reformed Jews, you know, celebrate in particular black rabbis. Kevin McDonald says that in some cases, intermarriage and conversion may have benefits to the Jewish community, such as the marriage of Jared Kushner, an Orthodox Jew, to Ivanka Trump and Kushner's subsequent influence on the Trump administration's policies toward Israel. Now, it's not clear what he's claiming here. Is he saying that Jared Kushner married Ivanka Trump in 2009 to influence U.S. policy toward Israel or advance Jewish interests? If so, he's not provided evidence seems to be a much less conspiratorial reason why Jared Kushner would want to marry a gorgeous Ivanka Trump. Reasons so obvious, I do not think they need to be spelled out. It's possible that Jews could benefit as a group from some strategic marriage alliances with powerful Gentiles, like Esther marrying King Ahasuerus in ancient Persia. But the potential benefits of some strategic marriages cannot explain intermarriage rates of well over 50% or possibly something like 70% among liberal Jews. Now, in a flagrant case of goalpost shifting, Kevin McDonald now says it is not the intermarriage rate per se that is important, but deviation from randomness. So obviously marriages between Jews are more common than would be expected if people married randomly. But there are several possible reasons for this besides exceptionally high Jewish ethnocentrism, including the fact that not all Gentiles are eager to marry Jews. Kevin McDonald acknowledges intermarriage is indeed quite high within the contemporary American Jewish community. It's not clear how this jives with the theory 
that our socio-political system is designed to advance the Jewish group evolutionary strategy, one of the main goals of which is to ensure the segregation of the Jewish gene pool from surrounding Gentile societies, according to Ken McDonald. So large-scale intermarriage is the very opposite of what Ken McDonald explicitly predicted. Ken McDonald in 2022 argues relatively high rates of intermarriage, low fertility, and various levels of Jewish identification in contemporary Western societies serve Jewish interests because they result in a bridge to the surrounding culture due to family ties with non-Jews, especially prominent non-Jews. This is especially the case since there remains a highly fertile core of conservative and orthodox Jews who overwhelmingly reject intermarriage. So note that high rates of intermarriage and low fertility never said to be part of the group evolutionary strategy before I drew attention to these phenomena. Leaving that aside, it's Kevin McDonald saying that Jews consciously pursue marriage with Gentiles to create bridges to the surrounding culture that serve Jewish interests. If so, he hasn't provided evidence for this. Is Kevin McDonald claiming that the practice of rampant intermarriage is a cultural adaptation, perhaps the result of cultural group selection that benefits Jews without their being consciously aware of it? He hasn't provided any evidence for that either. Has he, nor has he provided evidence that mass intermarriage, which is leading the secular Jewish community to disappear, actually benefits Jews at all from a group evolutionary perspective. Seems to suggest that there is a kamikaze strategy among secular liberal Jews to intermarry themselves out of existence to protect the highly fertile core of conservative and orthodox Jews. But what is the evidence for this? Do liberal Jews show any interest in promoting the interests of orthodox Jews? Do liberal Jews donate money or give significant political support to the orthodox Jewish community? Seems that Kevin McDonald is simply spinning an evidence-free story to avoid confronting facts that make no sense according to his theory. Let me play a little bit more from this uh, politician who Ricardo endorsed. Walk around and start planning for the legislation that we will need to address over the next two years in the 118th Congress that sooner or later, yes, sooner or later, we will begin to function as. Those are the good days. And guess what? Our constituents think, as they watch us on C-SPAN today, that this is how every day functions. They think that this is how every bill gets addressed in this body. And they will be shocked to learn the ones that you have not disclosed the little nasty secret to, that unfortunately, that's not how it works around this place. That under the current rules. So big guy has a great uh, comment in the chat. How could Jews have survived as a distinct people without being highly ethnocentric? So in some circumstances, Jews have been highly ethnocentric, usually in circumstances where the non-Jews around them were highly ethnocentric. In other circumstances, such as when Jews enjoyed positive relationships overall with the non-Jews around them, when the non-Jews have not been terribly ethnocentric, Jews have not been terribly ethnocentric. So non-Jewish Americans are not, in general, terribly ethnocentric, and Jewish Americans, in general, have a similar low level of ethnocentricity. So Jews frequently react to the surrounding culture, right? Jews are continually influenced by surrounding culture and levels of ethnocentricity it would make sense, would rise or fall depending upon circumstance, but largely depending upon what, what's the attitude of the non-Jews around you. So Jews in Western Europe, even 
after they, they move to the United States two or three generations later, tend to have much more positive reactions to non-Jews because Jews in Western Europe, generally speaking, you know, liked and respected the non-Jewish societies in which they lived. Jews from Eastern Europe tended to have mutually antagonistic relations with the non-Jews around them. So Jews, even generations later from Eastern Europe, tend to be more extreme ideologically, uh, much more separatist, much more likely to be extreme left or extreme right, extreme Zionist, extreme communist. So Western European Jews in, in the United States, their, their descendants tend to be moderate politically. Eastern European Jews in the United States tend to overwhelmingly vote for the left. Nathan Kaufman's writes, Ken McDonald in 2022 takes great pains to show that Sigmund Freud had a Jewish identity. Indeed, Freud did have a Jewish identity, and he said so explicitly. This fact is not evidence for Kevin McDonald's radical claim that, quote, Freud conceptualized himself as a leader in a war on Gentile culture. Freud never said anything to support that. Kevin McDonald writes, regarding Freud's sense of Jewish interest, Freud wrote of his messianic hope to achieve the integration of Jews and anti-Semites on the soil of psychoanalysis, quote, clearly indicating that psychoanalysis was viewed by its founder as a mechanism for ending anti-Semitism. But this quote just reflects that Freud saw psychoanalysis as a panacea for all social problems, including anti-Semitism. McDonald only succeeds in showing that at a time when almost all Europeans have strong ethnic identities, Freud also had a strong ethnic identity, and in addition, he opposed anti-Semitism. That Freud identified as a Jew and opposed discrimination against himself is completely unremarkable. It does not support Kevin McDonald's theory that the purpose of psychoanalysis was to wage war on Gentile culture or to advance the Jewish group evolutionary strategy. In both his public and private writings, Karl Marx expressed blatantly anti-Semitic views, and he looked forward to the eventual dissolution of the Jewish community. So when I went to UCLA in 1988-89, I was really into Marxism at the time. It's kind of a, a performance thing. I'd tell everyone I could, oh, I'm an atheistic communist. And uh, one day, I was taking this economics theory class from Russell Roberts, who now hosts the Econ Talker podcast. And before class, I, I read on the book board, you know, five books that I, I recommended of, of Marxist theory. And one was uh, Karl Marx's essay on the Jewish question. And one guy with the yellow says, oh, what's that about? And I was like, ooh, I didn't really think. And so I said, oh, it's just that uh, Marx saw Jews as the, the quintessence of, of the bourgeoisie and that when class distinctions are dissolved, then you know, ethnic and religious distinctions will be dissolved. So Karl Marx stated, what is the worldly religion of the Jews? Huckstering, what is his worldly God? Money, an organization of society which would abolish the preconditions for huckstering and therefore the possibility of huckstering would make the Jew impossible. Karl Marx complained that Eastern European Jews were reproducing like lice. He agreed with Friedrich Engels, who was not Jewish, that Polish Jews were the dirtiest of all races. So English Jews tend to be the, the most polite Jews in the world because Jews are always influenced by the culture surrounding them. Uh, Karl Marx supported Jewish emancipation with the goal of integrating Jews and Gentiles so that Jews would cease to exist as a separate people. Now, Kevin MacDonald found a couple of commentators with the eccentric theory that Karl Marx was only pretending to be an anti-Semite so that he would not be accused of supporting Jewish rights because of his own Jewish background. According to McDonald, this suggests a Jewish identity and concern for Jewish interests. But 
just because this completely speculative unorthodox theory about Marx's secret motivations is convenient for MacDonald does not mean that there is good reason to believe it. The scholar who came up with it himself notes that one does not have to particularly like Jews or Judaism to support their equal rights of citizen. citizens. He describes his own idea about Marx's motivations as speculation. There's no actual evidence that Marx's anti-Semitism or his stated wish for the Jewish community to cease to exist was a ruse to conceal a secret concern for Jewish interests. Even Lindemann, who offers a somewhat apologetic account of Marx's anti-Semitism, I think that's Albert Lindemann, concludes that it is difficult to deny that a strain of something akin to mean-spirited racism and anti-Semitism was to be found in Karl Marx, even if inconsistent with his thought and action in other regards. Marx really expressed sympathy for Jews suffering from oppression. Particularly remarkable and revealing is how rarely he referred to his own Jewish ancestry. Marx took little pride in his Jewishness, must be considered a prime candidate for that problematic category, along with LaSalle and Heine, Heinrich Heine, the poet of the uh, self-hating Jew. Back to this uh, politician. And under the current leadership construction that on fly-in days, typically Monday at the beginning of the week, the leadership on both sides of the aisle negotiate a number of bills, 15 to 20 pieces of legislation that one Democrat and one Republican stand on this floor they discuss momentarily. Am I ethnocentric? Well, it depends on circumstance. Okay, let's say I'm in a room and there's absolutely no one of my ethnicity in the room. Would I you know, abstain from talking and connecting with people there because they're not of my ethnicity, either the ethnicity of my genetics or the ethnicity of my newfound religion? No, no, I wouldn't. I, I've heard it said that as people get older, they often become more ethnocentric. So I kind of discovered during COVID, you know, a particular longing for my old Australian identity. And I started reading all these books about Australia. And then I spent uh, uh, five months in Australia over the past two years. So as I get older, I, I probably am becoming more ethnocentric, meaning more Australian. And what about ethnocentric in a Jewish way. Well, I spend most of my social time with Orthodox Jews. So my most important interpersonal connections are overwhelmingly with Orthodox Jews. And I reflect, reflecting that if I'd stayed in Australia, which is I came back here for a year after high school, if I'd stayed in Australia, it's highly unlikely I ever would have converted to Judaism. That was something that was much more possible in a multicultural state like the United States of America, as opposed to a more unified and corporate place like Australia, where you know converting to Judaism is, you know, it's not normally even thought of as a possibility. It's not even like considered a, a real thing, generally speaking. And and then to whatever extent I'm ethnocentric, all right, that those instincts would would exist prior to my prefrontal cortex, you know, mapping mapping things out. So I'm sure I have a lot of reflexes that I can't even see, and so I can't objectively measure you know, how ethnocentric I am. 
And then they say the magic words, without objection, we will pass this by unanimous consent. And there are two people standing on the floor passing pieces of legislation that oftentimes are the naming of buildings that don't really bother anybody or affect one's life, but in many circumstances spend millions and tens of millions of dollars that the taxpayers are obligated to cover, and their representative was not even here to vote upon it. And that, my friends, is wrong. It is wrong. So yes, we need to have change. We need to fix this broken system. Several of us have taken it upon ourselves to fly in and object to those very bills. Not because we are objecting to the bill, but just to force them to be brought out into the daylight so that everyone can hear about those bills. To force people to come out and vote up or down for those bills as their constituents believe that they are doing right now. That's just one of the little secrets. And it demonstrates, again, how broken this system is. Last summer, we began to negotiate. So I don't have any reaction to what this guy is talking about. I, I can't sit here and talk uh, without you know, taking a break for, for an hour, let alone two hours or three hours. So we always have to have some backup thing to, to play. Ricardo loved this speech. I like Ricardo, so I'm playing it. I think came action has what you referred to as Kevin McCarthy. Okay, back to the Kaufnitz. Let's go for Kaufnitz here. Kevin McDonald continues to highlight the anthropologist Franz Boas as a key figure in the supposed effort to advance Jewish interests by rejecting Darwinism in the social sciences. Guiding Boaz's Jewish identity, Kevin McDonald writes that he married within his ethnic group and was intensely concerned with anti-Semitism from an early period in his life. Boaz was deeply alienated from and hostile toward Gentile culture, particularly the cultural ideal of the Prussian aristocracy. Based on this, Kevin MacDonald concludes that Franz Boas had a strong Jewish identification and he was deeply concerned about anti-Semitism. But Kevin MacDonald is seriously misrepresenting his sources. First of all, Franz Boas did not marry within his ethnic group. Right? His wife was Catholic and had no Jewish ancestors. And uh, Nathan Kofnitz uh, hired a genealogist to do that uh, research. Second, uh, neither scholar that uh, Kevin McDonald is citing says anything to support the claim that Franz Bowers was deeply alienated from and hostile toward Gentile culture. Uh, in fact, Franz Bowers had a profound identification with classical German culture. So, Kevin McDonald avoids mentioning that Franz Boer is strongly identified as a German. So in all the years preceding the emergence of Nazism, Franz Boer consistently maintained pride in his German-American identity. And until it became impossible, he was more than ready to defend the homeland of Germany, even to the 
potential detriment of his own career and his own social standing. How on earth did Luke survive January 6th? He fled to the land down under, ruling that it's safer there. Considering that ethnocentrism is a synonym for racism. Are you guys all uh, January 6th survivors? Wow, we all we all survived like the equivalent of a plane crash together. We're all survivors of January 6th, guys. Uh, Franz Boas was determined not to be classified as a Jew. Common with many other Jews, particularly German Jews and others of a strongly assimilationist bent, did not acknowledge the existence of a specifically Jewish cultural or ethnic identity. The very existence of Jewish identity to Franz Boas was questionable, and indeed enlightened individuals were to be expected to want to disassociate themselves from identification as Jews. So even after Hitler's rise to power in 1933, Franz Boas was still willing to declare I am of Jewish descent, but in my feelings and in my thoughts, I am German. So Boaz explicitly stated that about his motivation, which refers to his Jewish, his German identity. Franz Boaz said, the background of my thinking was a German home in which the ideals of the revolution of 1848 were a living force. Kevin MacDonald ignores this, fails to mention another striking fact, which is that Franz Boas seems to look forward to the disappearance via intermarriage of both blacks and Jews, believing that this would bring an end to anti-black and anti-Jewish racism. Franz Boas was concerned about anti-Semitism, especially when he was subjected to anti-Semitic discrimination, but that is not evidence of a particularly strong Jewish identity, and his concern about anti-Semitism was limited. So in 1942, the editor of a Jewish newspaper asked Franz Boas to write an article condemning the notorious anti-Semite Father Coughlin and calling for his publication, Social Justice, to be banned. Franz Boas replied, my opinion, the only kind of protest that means anything is to attack the whole attitude of races toward one another. If you want a note which I accuse at the same time the Jews for their anti-Negro attitude, I won't write it. So prior to the Civil War, you would not find one rabbi in the American South who spoke up against slavery. So these are not the sentiments that you would expect from a supposedly fanatical crusader against anti-Semitism. Kevin MacDonald in 2022 mockingly writes, Kaufness claims that the culture of critique maintains, quote, that liberal Jews hypocritically advocate multiculturalism for Gentiles and Gentile countries, but racial purity and separatism for Jews in Israel, a position that conflicts with the pronouncements of some contemporary reform leaders does not seem to dispute my so-called claim that the cultural critique maintains what I say it does. But more important, he ignores the voluminous evidence I provided that prominent Jewish liberals who advocate liberalism and multiculturalism for Gentiles, Gentile countries, usually advocate more of the same policies for Jews in Israel. Ken McDonald says the Coptist restricts himself to pronouncements by contemporary American reform leaders, opinions that may not reflect the views of the wider reform community, much less represent a consensus among American Jews first part of that sentence is false, and the second part is completely unsupported. McDonald provides no evidence that there's some large difference between American Reform leaders and American Reform Jews who pay their dues to these synagogues. Kevin McDonald admits that he knows of no surveys on attitudes of American Jews toward non-Jewish immigration to Israel and vice versa. However, he contrasts the view of American Jews, 80% of whom would like immigration to the U.S. to stay the same or to increase 
views of Israeli Jews, almost half of whom say the Arabs should be expelled or transferred from Israel. This, he says, shows that Jewish attitudes on immigration and multiculturalism vary depending upon whether they live in Israel or the United States. What did Duva do on January 6th? He stayed in Detroit, ensured that all 20 of his locks on his front door were secure, and read books, says Art Bell. Kaftanis responds, this shows that different populations living under completely different conditions have different attitudes on some issues. Jews are not special. Germans tended to have different political attitudes depending on whether they lived in Germany in 1942, America in 1942, or in Germany in 2022. That does not make Germans a race of hypocrites. Hypocrisy is when mutually contradictory views are found in the same person. As to American versus Israeli Jews, Israeli Jews are less than 50% Ashkenazi. American Jews are about 90% Ashkenazi. Israeli Jews are far more traditional and religious than American Jews. Israeli Jews live under a constant threat of mortal violence that is completely alien to American Jews. So in a trivial sense, Kevin MacDonald is right that Jewish attitudes on immigration, multiculturalism, many other subjects vary depending on where they live. This does not make Jews hypocritical or different from other people. Donald provides one interesting example of what superficially looks like hypocrisy in a liberal Jewish organization. Points to the supposedly different attitudes of the Anti-Defamation League regarding demographic displacement of the native European-derived population of the U.S. for their attitudes on a one-state solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. On the one hand, the EDL condemns replacement theory which its CEO Jonathan Greenblatt describes as a white supremacist tenet that the white race is in danger of a rising tide of non-whites. On the other hand, the ADL opposes a one-state solution in Israel because it would turn Jews into a vulnerable minority within what was once their own territory. But leaving aside the question of whether the ADL has acted in unprincipled ways in other contexts, it's actually not so clear that it, is hypocritic, that it hypocritically advocates different policies for the USA and Israel. On the one hand, the ADL does not regard Jewish as a race. Some influential Jew expresses a desire for Israel to remain majority Jewish or majority white. The ADL and Jonathan Greenblatt would be very unhappy. On the other hand, the ADL would surely object to calls to keep American majority Christian, although Christian is not race either. So in some sense, the ADL does advocate different policies with regard to the U.S. and Israel. But that still does not necessarily make the ADL hypocritical. There could be differences between the USA and Israel that, according to the ADL's principles, justify different policies. Perhaps from the ADL perspective, America was founded for the express purpose of protecting freedom of religion. According to the ADL, Israel was founded as a necessary haven for members of a religious minority that's been subjected to centuries of sometimes genocidal persecution. So the ADL believes that the existence of Israel provides Jews with a safe haven from the bigotry and endangerment they have suffered perennially as a minority culture among non-Jewish majority cultures. So from the ADL's perspective, people who identify as Jews who can be of any race need a place to escape persecution, whereas white people do not. I'm not expressing a view about whether this attitude is justified, just pointing out it is not necessarily hypocritical. Side its stated desire for Israel to remain majority Jewish, the ADL promotes the same liberal policies in Israel as it does in the U.S., on his website, brags that ADL Israel is a leading proponent of social cohesion in Israel and educates on issues of hate, discrimination, inequities, and promotes Jewish religious pluralism. 
works to support vulnerable and minority communities, including Ethiopians, LGBTQ+, and African asylum seekers. EDL lobbies the Israeli government to accept what are, relative to Israel's small population, large numbers of African refugees. And the EDL declares that Israel's diversity is a source of strength. So the ADL's position on immigration in the U.S. versus Israel, probably the strongest example of alleged Jewish hypocrisy that Kevin McDonald has provided. Yet even in this case, it is far from clear whether there is any genuine hypocrisy. A group of us, in good faith, a list of changes, amendments to the rules of this body, not to empower ourselves, not to bring personal benefit to ourselves, but to empower you and you and you, Maxine, and you and you and everyone sitting in this chamber equally. There's no rules. I did not use anyone's name. Everyone should be... Excuse me. Maxine. Member, direct your remarks to the chair, please. I will, Madam Chair. Thank you. Thank you. That is so that everyone will have equal representation. Equal representation for the districts that elected them. These are not radical deviations from the norm. These are a restoration of the rules so that this place can function properly. Things like single-subject legislation that most state houses utilize right now so that we don't have 4,000-page documents that we are given a, a matter of hours to review that are filled with many, Key many subject that matters many that are true. Does not belong on a list of the top 200 singers. Oh my, she's a great singer. Minnie Riverton. Yeah. Oh, she had one song. You. It's easy, it's easy, easy you're beautiful. beautiful. No, you're beautiful. Everything okay. that I do. Yeah, that's right. That's da, right. Da, 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 da. Okay. All right. Was Minnie on there and Celine Dion isn't. Where was Sammy Davis on the list? Oh, I don't know. Or Sammy Hagar. No. Celine Dion should be on it, though. That, this yeah. is like performers, too. Yeah. And then I have a friend, well, I guess we have a friend, who loves Celine Dion so much that when anyone says anything bad about Celine Dion, he recoils as if you just hit him in the face. Yeah, exactly. No, it is an outsized reaction <laughs> that people have to something so strange like singing. Singing probably just evolved as a way, as a mating ritual, right? To sort of, like, get more mates, you sang. Order, run from something, <laughs> trying to eat I mean, that you. is yeah. literally what birds do. Yes, that's a, well, the birds and the bees. Well, the birds sing is actually violent. Oh, is This it? is my area. You come over here, I'll kill you. Your sparrows oh. are murderers. Coming up! <laughs> they played Juliet and Romeo, and now they're suing for serious doyo. My asthma felt anything but normal. Uh, okay, so Rolling Stone came out with a list of uh, you know, top 200 singers and uh, none of the, none of the uh, top, top 10 anyway were, were white. So, you know, what the hell is wrong with, with uh, the white singers? Steve Saylor picked up on this.
Right, we've got a post. No whites or parties need applied. So Rolling Stone ranks the greatest singers of all time. One Aretha Franklin. I mean, they don't even list Russell Hitchcock or Graham Russell from S Applied in here. Like, what kind of list of top ten singers doesn't include Russell Hitchcock and Graham Russell from S Applied? I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. Making love out of nothing at all. Love and other bruises. Whitney Houston, number two, Sam Cooke, three, Billie Holiday, four, Mariah Carey, five, Ray Charles, six, Stevie Wonder, seven, Beyonce, eight, Otis Redding, nine, Al Green, ten. So is the typical Rolling Stone white boomer subscriber now so senile that in 2023, he believes that back in 1969, he only listened to black music, says Steve Saylor. Okay. Back to the Nathan Kofner's magnum opus in response to Kevin McDonald's cultural critique. And not even Freddie Mercury, the Parsi, makes the list. Jews, liberalism, and immigration policy. Regarding liberal activism among Jews, I will address three key claims made by Kevin McDonald. A, Jews were a necessary condition for the spread of liberalism in the West. B, Jews were responsible for immigration policy, specifically the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965 which ended the national origins quota system that put whites on track to become a minority in the U.S. and C, <clears throat> Jews responsible for ending the quota system intended to turn whites into a minority. So to begin with immigration, Kevin McDonald has repeatedly claimed that his views on the role of Jews in shaping U.S. immigration policy is shared by mainstream historian Hugh Davis Graham. Also, this was the topic that really turned according to Kevin McDonald, really turned him against Jews when he saw what an influential force, as he saw that Jews were in immigration policy. So Kevin quotes historian Hugh Davis Graham saying that the driving force at the core of the immigration reform movement were Jewish organizations long active in opposing racial and ethnic quotas. But quoting this passage in isolation misrepresents Graham's position. Graham says that by the time Lyndon Baines Johnson took office, abolishing the national origins quota seemed an idea his time had come for a variety of reasons. Reasons the immigration system constructed in the 1920s was threatened by growing evidence that it no longer worked. So in the years preceding 1965, an incoherent patchwork of special government measures had been employed to circumvent the quotas. Furthermore, the egalitarian thrust from the civil rights movement doomed any policies that smacked of racial discrimination. So although Graham says Jewish organizations played a leading role in opposing the national origins quotas, he makes it clear that by 1965, the quotas had become untenable for both practical and philosophical reasons. And this was the same all around the West, including Australia, including in Europe, uh, including in countries with very little Jewish influence. So by uh, 1918, Australia was called by by one bloke, uh, the least Jewishly influenced country in the world, though by the end of World War II, due to the number of Holocaust survivors who, who come to Australia, uh, it moved into the top 10. I think I'm kidding. <laughs> Is there a statute of limitations for on-screen relations? True, they're suing over nude scenes that actors had to do as teens. Mm. This is an amazing story. The yeah. stars of a 1968 Romeo and Juliet movie are suing over its nude scene that they performed when they were just 16 and 15 years old. 
At the time, the movie was well-received, even winning multiple Oscars, plus the Roman Polanski Award for Outstanding Teenage Nudity. <laughs> Funny, because it's true. The actress who played Juliet Olivia Hussey even defended the scene as recently as 2018, saying the nakedness, quote, was needed for the film. Mm, if I had a nickel for every time I said that. <laughs> and the only films I was making was for Driver's Ed. <laughs> I think that was his nickname. <laughs> oh. Call me Driver's Ed. I'm in the book. Under your bed. <laughs> Where am I? All right. Oh, no. Now she and the actor who played Romeo, Leonard Whiting, are suing Paramount Pictures for more than $500 million. $500 million, Claiming that doing the scene in nothing but body paint amounted, I guess we're body paint, amounted to sexual exploitation of children. But the movie is now 55 years old, making it older than Leonardo DiCaprio's last three girlfriends combined. <laughs> And the actors are now in their 70s. Of course, they could reshoot the scene today. Instead of body paint, they'll be covered in aspercream. Uh, yeah, don't knock it till you tried it, people. Oh, man. Hot all over. Cat. They, they, so they claim the director said the movie would fail if they didn't do it. That is a great line to get people naked, right? And also, it they depends want... on what you mean by great. <laughs> Effective, probably. Yes. So what do, you, do, what do you make of this? What do you make of this well, lawsuit? I think if this was a different movie, you change one word, and it was like Romeo and the Drag Queen, it would be leading off Fox and Friends. <laughs> uh, but because the people say, okay, Hollywood has this environment where you can say, okay, you want this, but there's a million other people who want this, and so if you don't do this, then, you know, there'll be somebody else who will. So that's why we hear nonstop stories about perverted stuff that goes on in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It was a long time ago, but, you know, California lifted its statute of limitations for a certain period of time, and this came in on the deadline of that. Hmm. Yeah, it's the professional cheerleader law that they can complain about what they get paid, but someone will take their place the moment they leave. Uh, but by the way, I disagree with you. If this movie was made, this movie would be made today if it were trans. Right? Well, huh? you still couldn't have the nude scene, though. It, it, what? You couldn't have the nude scene. Yeah. Oh, yes, you yes, could, you because it would be... What, are you body 15? shaming, Joe? No, no, I'm saying... That's How not dare what I you mean. body shame? I mean, if, if, if you're 15 is 15. Ask yeah. R. Kelly. Yeah. Dave, Dave Chappelle I, did a very funny bit about it. I, but the, the point is, is... First of all, I look forward to whatever government list I got myself on today by Googling the scene. Yeah. <laughs> I did, too. I Googled it. By the way, it's readily available on Google Images and videos. Yes. I guess it shouldn't be. Yeah. The, look, I think, I think Kat has a great point. I've worked in Hollywood. I hope to again, even after having appeared on Fox News. <laughs> uh, but I've... I've never been sexualized, but I've been in situations where people have done very unethical things to me, and those people were in power positions. Like and, what? Uh, yeah. Come okay. on. Uh, and, and you do feel afraid to go, uh, you go, I should say something about that. I should yeah. complain about this. And you go, but if I do, I'm going to. So I understand the pressure of, not to an extent of what some other people have been through, but I do to some extent understand the pressure of, 
Is it worth losing everything to speak out against this right Did now? Did a female director try to get you naked? It was a man. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wait, you, you, and he okay. got me naked. Uh, he said it was for a Lord of the Flies remake. <laughs> <laughs> he handed me a shell and said the riff. No. The, uh, but, but... <laughs> the, only, the, only, the, the only thing that I think is a shame about this, it, I understand the, the, the aspect of not saying something. I don't understand why three years ago, four years ago, she went out of her way to defend it. That's what I don't get. And now is completely contradicting that. It's like, when, it's like how Disney now goes out of their way to be woke when yeah. they did all of the most racist stuff. It's like, guys, just be better. Yeah. Just be better and shut up. Like, yeah. you don't have to go the opposite direction. I, don't, I, I think that takes some of the steam out of this stance now because it's, it's I don't know, it's a little, it's not suspect. It's, if it's illegal and it's wrong, then it's illegal and it's wrong. But it's just weird to me that she took such a 180. Statute of limitations, Judge. You are a judge. Where do you rule on this case? You see what I did? Well, it's not, the case is not going to be dismissed because it's an old case because they, as Kat said, they decided based on the number of sexual assaults complaints that they heard about where it happened a long time ago, California passed a law and they said, look, we don't care how long ago it was. If you have a sexual complaint, you want to sue somebody, it's fine. You got two years. These people come in at the December 31st. This woman has lost all credibility. Mm. When she defended the film, when she said it was needed for the film, when initially when she signed on, she was not supposed to be naked. She was supposed to be wearing some kind of suit sometime kind of cover-up for the film. And then they agreed. Where was her agent? Where were her parents? Where was everybody else? And by the way, with all due respect, I mean, I, I represented women who were raped and, 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 and abused in ways that you can't imagine. Mm -hmm. But this whole idea, oh, the pressure. The only pressure is the pressure to succeed, not the pressure that I see on the street of women who are forced or beaten or, or, or cut to commit a crime. This is, oh, I want to succeed, I want to succeed, so I'll take my clothes off and I'll do whatever I have to to succeed. That's different than the real pressure that they envisioned in allowing these cases to come forward. Very heavy stuff today. Wow. You know, is this the, uh, is this the uh, wrong time for me to tell everybody that I'm actually wearing body paint? <laughs> Well, I'll never watch Basic Instinct again. <laughs> and I'm God. sad I knew that's what he was doing. Yes. Yeah. Last yeah. word, Tyrus. You know, uh, I, I think in, in this day and age where we're kind of seeing this, this lax of physical yes. look yeah. at pedophilia, they're trying to change the you name, know. they're trying to ease it down, and I, I, I'm actually for this. I, I also believe that people can feel one way and then think about it and be like, you know what, I was 15. I mean, I have, I have, an, I have three eleven-year-olds. You know what I'm saying? And and if any one of, and I've been in films and stuff. And if a director came to them and said, "Oh, we got to have it this way. We got to have it this way," and it, it it can be influenced, but you're right. My kids should say, uh, "No, let me talk to no, my dad." But you know, it's yeah, worse because than the, that because four years ago she came out and said it was needed. Exactly, she lost all People, credibility. Okay. Credibility, but you. So. Four years ago, when she said that the scene was needed, that's because she, her, her community, probably her acting community, had that attitude. 
So we think that a lot of our ideas are our own, our beliefs are our own, that our values are our own, but we're usually just reflecting what's coming back to us from our society. And now she's changed her opinion because society's changed its opinion. And now society after the Me Too movement sees this as much more of a problem. And so she's changing with the times and she's also changing with the incentives. She might be able to get publicity from this. She might be able to make money from this. So change incentives, people will change, change society, individuals will change. I remember when I was a hot young actor on the make in in Los Angeles in 1994, going out for auditions like this one, you know, casting director, you know, wanted me to kiss a dude and I, I wouldn't do it. And I went, went back to synagogue and I asked Dennis Prager, hey, you know, these casting directors that they sometimes want me to kiss dudes, uh, should I, uh, should I broaden myself as an actor? Am I being, you know, homophobic and petty and needlessly handicapping my success in, in Hollywood by restricting myself from having sex with blokes. And uh, Dennis Prager said now that I was making the right decision, you know, no, no gay stuff for 40. So I got that from Dennis Prager. You know, I got that from inside my own heart. And uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to have the gay sex to, to get ahead in, in Hollywood. And my career, you know, may have suffered, but so be it. I stood tall. I stood firm. I Stood, you know, stood up for my for my values. Art Bell comments. I asked Luke, "What will make your streaming career?" He said, "Situations, my dear boy. Situations, events, my dear boy. Events." All right, back to Nathan Kofnis. So. Kevin McDonald claimed that his views were held by this other historian named Graham. Uh, so in Graham's view, all evidence suggests that the immigration reform leaders did not anticipate the consequences of abolishing the national quotas in the 1965 Immigration Act. Notes that Emmanuel Seller, the Jewish congressman who officially proposed the 1965 legislation, also known as the Hart Seller Act, was disturbed by the steep decline of European immigration. Seller introduced a bill to allow higher immigration from Ireland, Britain, and Scandinavian countries rather than shithole countries. So Zeller said that European immigration had suffered from unintended discrimination as a result of his own law. Kevin McDonald in 2022 now says that the wider context of the 1965 law was critically influenced by other aspects of Jewish activism. Thus, any critique of McDonald's treatment of immigration must consider whether Jews had important influence on the wider context but why did McDonald say that Graham shares his views if apparently he meant that Graham would share his views if only he appreciated the role that Jews supposedly played in the wider context of the law? Sadly, Graham passed away and we cannot ask him what he thinks, but there is no evidence that he shared Ken McDonald's views on this topic. According to Graham, egalitarian thrust from the civil rights movement is not the only factor that led to the demise of the national origins quotas. Contrary to Graham, Kevin McDonald insists in 2022 that Seller did anticipate the consequences of the law, writing... Congressman Emmanuel Seller was involved in the publication of the report, Whom We Shall Welcome, published by the President's Commission on Immigration and Nationalization, that viewed changing the ethnic balance of the U.S. as a desirable goal. Given the substance of the report and Seller's involvement in its publication, it's difficult to believe that Seller did not advocate changing the ethnic balance of the U.S. Getting rid of the national origins formulas was a necessary condition for changing the ethnic status quo. To support his claim that... 
this report called for changing the ethnic balance of the U.S. McDonald quotes from the cultural critique. The, the report thus viewed changing the racial status quo of the United States as a desirable goal, and to that end made a major point of the desirability of increasing the total number of immigrants. However, there's nothing about the desirability of changing the racial status quo of the USA on the report, and Kevin McDonald has admitted this. And we get uh, some tedious details on that discussion. Uh, the claim that, despite all evidence to the contrary, Sella secretly knew that the 1965 law would turn whites into a minority based on the fact that he was completely involved in the publication of this one report is completely baseless. Liberalism and blank slatism. Kevin McDonald ignores centuries of radicalism among Gentiles and shines the spotlight on a small number of Jews who, while in some cases highly influential, were not the primary drivers of the historical trend toward liberalism. Philosophical tenets of liberalism were originally formulated by Gentile thinkers during the Enlightenment. First experiment in radical liberal social engineering was the Gentile-led French Revolution, which began in 1789, almost a century before Jews started gaining significant cultural influence. The blank slatism, which is the root of modern radicalism, goes back at least to John Locke, who in 1690, have you even read John Locke? So John Locke in 1690 declared that the human mind begins as a white paper void of all characteristics. Claude Adrian Helvetius, who in 1758 proposed a radically egalitarian political philosophy based on Lockean psychology, was more influential than Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the decades preceding the revolution in France. William Godwin, the founder of philosophical anarchism, and husband of Mary Wollstonecraft, one of the founders of modern feminism, wrote in 1793, Children are a sort of raw material put into our hands, a ductile and yielding substance, which if we do not ultimately mold in conformity to our wishes, it is because we throw away the power committed to us. So Stephen Pinker notes that John Stuart Mill was perhaps the first to apply John Locke's blank slate psychology to political concerns we recognize today. John Stuart Mill condemned hereditarianism, including with regard to sex differences, in one of his characteristically run-on sentences. Here's John Stuart Mill. I've long felt that the prevailing tendency to regard all the marked distinctions of human character as innate and in the main indelible and to ignore the irresistible proofs that by far the greater part of those differences, whether between individuals, races, or sexes, uh, such as not only might, but naturally would be produced by differences in circumstances is one of the chief hindrances to the rational treatment of great social questions and one of the great stumbling blocks to human improvement. So these Gentiles, John Locke, John Stuart Mill, etc., along with many others, are the scholars who first formulated the doctrine of blank slatism and conjoined it with liberal leftist political ideals, yet they are completely missing from Kevin MacDonald's version of history. Charles Murray observes that behaviorism founded by John Watson took up the blank slate to its ultimate expression. So Watson summed up his theory in a famous passage in 1924, give me a dozen healthy infants well-formed and my own specific world to bring them up in and I'll guarantee to take any one at random and train him to become any type of specialist. I might select doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, and yes, even beggar man and thief, regardless of his talents, pensions, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and race of his ancestors. So after Watson, the torchbearer of behaviorism was another Gentile, B.F. Skinner. In terms of academic and cultural influence, behaviorism rivaled Freudianism. Study ranking 
the 100 most eminent psychologists of the 20th century based on a mix of quantitative and qualitative measures placed Freud third while Skinner came in first. In the cultural critique, behaviorism is mentioned only a single time in a parenthetical as an example of a universalist ideology to which a Jewish political scientist named Charles Liebman had subscribed. Ken McDonald does not even attempt to blame Jews for behaviorism. Instead, he just ignores the whole movement. So Kevin McDonald blames Franz Boas for establishing the liberal orthodoxy that all races are psychologically identical. It is true that Boas played a leading role in promoting this view, although he did not claim that all races are literally the same. The idea that race differences are skin deep started gaining traction among liberal scholars in the 1880s before Franz Boas even came on the scene. Before Boaz was born, Benjamin Disraeli, right, born Jewish, converted to Christianity, became Britain's prime minister, referred to that pernicious doctrine of modern times, the natural equality of man, and the natural equality of man now in vogue, taking the form of cosmopolitan fraternity. So in the mid-19th century, Christian abolitionists and civil rights leaders were invoking the authority of Gentile scientists who affirmed the equality of all races. In a speech delivered in 1869, U.S. Senator Charles Sumner, who'd been a leading abolitionist, quoted Alexander von Humboldt. While we maintain the unity of the human species, we are at the same time, we at the same time repel the depressing assumption of superior and inferior races of men. There are nations more susceptible of cultivation, more highly civilized, more ennobled by mental cultivation than others, but none in themselves nobler than others. So the Senator Sumner commented, such is the testimony of science by one of its greatest masters. So science is enlisted for the equal rights of all. Alfred Russell Wallace co-authored the first paper on the theory of natural selection with Charles Darwin in 1858. was another influential advocate of the equality hypothesis. Based on his experience traveling in South America and Southeast Asia, he believed intelligence to be equal among all groups. In 1869, he concluded the theory of natural selection cannot explain the high level of intelligence among human beings. So he eventually became an advocate of intelligent design. Chat says Judaism is contra to the blank slate. So his rosy view of the evolutionary process, which de-emphasized the role of competition, was embraced by progressive activists of the day, such as the Gentile Russian anarchist and revolutionary Peter Kropotkin, and Wallace became a socialist. Franz Bauer attributed his views about race and culture to the prominent Gentile scholar Theodore Waits. In 1859, Waits published on the unity of the human species and the natural condition of man, the first volume of what would become a six-volume work. He argued that all people are equally destined for liberty. Sounds like George W. Bush. And differences between them are not innate, but something acquired in the course of their development, which under favorable circumstances might have been equally acquired by peoples who appear at present less capable of civilization. So in Franz Bauer's treatment of race over the years, no other authority achieved the prominence according to Theodore Waits. As late as 1834, Bauer's was still reminding his readers that his own view of culture had been expressed by Waits as early as 1858 and was the basis of all serious studies of culture. The name Waits, however, does not appear a single time in Kevin MacDonald's Culture of Critique. So this shift from biology to culture, especially with respect to group differences, can be attributed to the fact that many social scientists did not wish to accept the possibility that biological reality might place constraints on their vision of a just society. There was and still is a strong psychological motivation for utopian-minded scientists to interpret evidence in a way that magnifies the importance of culture and de-emphasizes the importance of biology. Anthropologists who specialize in the study of culture 
had a professional incentive to de-emphasize biology to establish the independence of their field. Acknowledging the importance of biology meant ceding authority to biologists. So the evidence suggests that Franz Boas was motivated by an ideological commitment rather than professional defensiveness, but both motives probably play important roles in the ultimate victory of anti-biologism in anthropology and other social sciences. Kevin MacDonald correctly notes that many early 20th century anthropologists were Jewish, which is an interesting piece of information, the implications of which warrant investigation. It's entirely plausible that the Jewish identity of social scientists was sometimes an important source of motivation for their hostility toward biology. I'm certain that this was the case. Racism, including anti-Semitism, is often rooted in the perception that there are biological differences between groups. So Jews had a personal incentive to undermine discrimination against themselves by denying the explanatory power of biology. This does not mean that Jews, let alone strongly identified Jews striving to promote Jewish group evolutionary interests, were the deciding factor in the rejection of biological thinking in the social sciences. From the National Anthem, just praying for DeMar's full recovery. Millions were raised for his charity. A thirst for his medical updates were on the minds of Americans from coast to coast, in our newsroom especially, all wondering what exactly happened to stop this man's heart and when he comes out of his coma, how close DeMar would be to 100%. Well, it was the realization and ultimately unfortunate reminder that life is precious, none of us are invincible, and even elite athletes are vulnerable, as vulnerable as anyone else. The result, an American bond, reformed like we have not seen in quite some time. I saw people, coaches, players on both sides, I saw the best in, in athletes last night on that field. The players love each other. They respect one another. They go through trials and tribulations and put their bodies and their minds through a lot of things the average citizen simply couldn't even think about enduring. I want to pray for this. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now and pray for strength for DeMar, for healing for DeMar. Well, this kid's 24 years old, right? You know, this really, it, it me up last night. Wow. Think about that. While DeMar Hamlin's condition, well, it's good news. It's improving every single minute, it seems. He's now awake, speaking with teammates. A question remains, what happened to DeMar that made him absorb a hit to the chest? Quickly stand up and then quickly collapsed, suffering what we now know is cardiac arrest. Now, due to the way it unfolded, experts are pointing to this word, commodio cordis. Something called commodio cordis, which is when a, typically a projectile, but if you get hit right on the over the heart at exactly the right time in the cardiac cycle, the heart is transiently very vulnerable to an arrhythmia. Which is a very rare thing. I mean, it's typically like less than 30 or 40 people a year um, have this. Um, typically, it's associated with young people, like less than 20 years old, who are playing sports where some kind of blunt trauma to the chest can happen, particularly baseball or lacrosse. Wow. Got to know a new word. Strange to you, right? Strange to me, too. But unfortunately, not to my next guest. Karen and John Akampura were thrust into learning everything about this in 2000 when they tragically lost their son Lewis on the lacrosse field at the age of 14. It was his first high school game. Survive. But because of what they learned about their son's accident since, hundreds and perhaps thousands have survived around the country, around the world. Damar so this is an example of the experts getting it right within two minutes of that event happening you know, on live national TV, cardiologists were tweeting that 
that that name for, for what for what happened. Now, perhaps part of the reason for this is that shoulder pads have gotten much smaller, and so a, a hit delivered by a shoulder now carries much more impact. If if shoulder pads were wider, like they used to be, then the force delivered by that hit would be spread out and reduced. Okay, let's have a look at the chat. Great adversary said, if I had the power, I'd make you president, Luke, more brains and moral fiber in this little community than all of our politicians. Well, thank you very much. If he is talking and recovering, why no photos and video? Well, maybe maybe there are other things uh, more, more pressing for him right now than to be photographed and, and videoed and that sharing for, for the public, right? There are some intimate things Glib, glib medley that don't need to be shared with the public, such as when when a man loves his wife and they come together in an act of unity. All right, where, where these these two people become one, that does not necessarily need to be photographed and videotaped, and then shown to the public and monetized. All right, there there are ways that human beings can conduct themselves and love one another that do not necessarily need to be captured on, on photographs or moving pictures and then sold to the public. But I am a traditionalist. Yes, we are more vulnerable than we ordinarily realize. Yeah, we are more vulnerable. We're all incredibly vulnerable. That's one thing I've noticed from interviewing thousands of people, how they're very rich, very successful, you know, highly accomplished people, you know, people with extraordinary talents, but they can be you know, cut off at the knees. They can be hurt. I, I mean, almost, almost anyone can be you know, devastated by something that you say. And I just don't think that we would consciously thrive if we you know, fully and appropriately recognize the tremendous degree of our vulnerability. That's why for, for most people, it's not a good idea to become a live streamer, right? You're massively increasing your, your vulnerabilities when you start sharing yourself on a live stream. The actor guy who got run over by a snowplow was posting selfies the next day. Yeah, is that Jeremy Renner or something like that? Okay, you're saying 40. Cut the nonsense, get back to Nathan Koftas. Recent list of the 25 most cited books in the history of social science provides another piece of evidence that Kevin MacDonald is downplaying the influence of radical Gentile scholars. Michel Foucault, who with his theories about power and sexuality, probably did more than anyone else to shape work orthodoxy, has two books on the list, Discipline and Punish, Ranked seventh, and the three volume The History of Sexuality, ranked eleventh. Paulo Ferrer's Pedagogy of the Oppressed is ranked third. John Rawls, The Theory of Justice, is ranked eighth. None of the 25 books was authored by Freud, Boaz, Frankfurt School theorists, or anyone else mentioned in the culture of critique besides Karl Marx, whose Das Kapital is ranked 17th. Das Kapital was the most cited book before 1950. The citation count of books is a far from perfect measure of the academic, let alone cultural 
influence of their authors. Freud and even Boaz were far more influential than, for example, Lev Vygotsky, whose book on developmental psychology ranked six. Freud also has far more total citations in psychology journals than Vygotsky. Freud was ranked the third most eminent psychologist of the 20th century. Vygotsky was ranked 83rd. That being said, there is a fairly high correlation between the number of citations to a book and its influence, though probably not its merit. Citation data suggests that MacDonald is spinning a false version of history that leaves out key figures in the development of modern leftism and liberalism. Kevin MacDonald laments the decline of Anglo-Saxon nationalism in America, which incidentally excluded whites with names like MacDonald, and which he attributes to Jewish machinations. But the impulse to universalism and miscegenation arose from within the heart of waspdom. Quintessential American wasp intellectual Ralph Waldo Emerson held non-Caucasians, which for him included the Irish, in low regard. Nevertheless, he declared in 1846 that the USA is the asylum of all nations. Wonderful. We are the dumping ground. We are the rubbish heap of all nations. We look forward to a time in America where the energy of Irish, Germans, Swedes, Poles, and Cossacks, and all the European tribes of the Africans and Polynesians will construct a new race as vigorous as the new Europe, which came out of the smelting pot of the Dark Ages. Many Protestant theologians at this same time in America saw immigration as a mark of divine favor. They lobbied vigorously against restrictions, particularly on Chinese immigration. Some even saw the ingathering of the world's peoples into their country as a sign of the second coming. Many Anglo-Protestants in mid-19th century America expected non-Anglo-Protestant immigrants to become culturally and racially assimilated into the dominant group, which they regarded as superior. Wasp chauvinism was real, but it existed alongside strongly inclusivist tendencies long before Jews entered the picture. Jews did play a part in formulating open borders, universalist, liberal orthodoxy, but not in the way Kevin McDonald's claims. The liberal progressives were the first recognizably modern left liberal open borders movement. They combined aspects of individualist anarchism, ecumenism, and progressivism into a new synthesis. Two intellectual traditions nourished liberal progressivism, Anglo-American anarchism and secularized reform Judaism. Former was represented by William James, the second by Felix Adler. So William James' philosophy of pluralism enjoins people to combine elements from diverse ethical systems. The German-born Felix Adler, who was a leading figure in American Reform Judaism, came up with the idea that Jews should aspire to die as a race after they achieve their mission to spread monotheism. Yes, we love our cops, our law enforcement. Are there any sexologists left who haven't gone woke? So not even Richard Spencer did Millennial Woes' year-end streams. Rubbish heaps are beautiful. What's your problem, 40? Uh, Art Bell says, brick phones allow for relaxation and rest as opposed to smartphones. So Nick Fuentes is done with Millennial Woes. But what about Nick Fuentes and Milo and Kanye West? Whatever happened to that gang? Okay, Felix Adler explained, the perpetuity of the Jewish race depends on the perpetuity of the Jewish religion. So long as there shall be a reason of existence for Judaism, 
so long the individual Jews will keep apart and will do well to do so. When this process of evangelization for ethical monotheism is accomplished, the individual members of the Jewish race will look about them and perceive that there is a great, perhaps greater liberty in religion beyond the pale of their race. They will lose their peculiar idiosyncrasies and their distinctiveness will fade and eventually the Jewish race will die. So yeah, when Jews enjoy good relations with non-Jews, they tend to go to bed with non-Jews and assimilate and begin the process of disappearing. When Jews have bad relations with the non-Jews around them, they become more ethnocentric to match the ethnocentricity of the non-Jews around them. So Felix Adler's wish is now coming true, at least as far as American Reformed Jews and secular Jews are concerned. Felix Adler's suggestion that Jews should universalize themselves out of existence inspired some Anglo-Protestants such as John Dewey to adopt a similar stance toward their own group. Contrary to Kevin MacDonald, Jews did not convince Anglo-Protestants to abandon their own drive for group continuity while pursuing separatism for themselves. Rather, some Reformed Jews renounced their own aspirations to continue as a distinct people, and some Gentiles, already primed with universalist tendencies, took inspiration from that Jewish example. What about the prevailing view that only non-whites should be allowed to celebrate their identity? Nathan Coptus. The key figure was a Gentile named Randolph Bourne. He became first known for publishing an article in the Atlantic Monthly in 1916 titled Transnational America. Bourne was influenced by Horace Kaler, a Jewish philosopher who advocated multiculturalism. Kaler argued that America is a federation for international colonies in which all ethnic groups ought to be preserved as distinct entities. For Kaler, that included Anglo-Protestants. Now, there are many problems with Kalin's model, but there can be no doubt that he treated all groups consistently. Bourne's innovation was to infuse Kalin's structure with wasp self-loathing. As a rebel against his own group, Bourne combined liberal progressives' desire to transcend New Englandism and Protestantism with Kalin's call for minority groups to maintain their own ethnic boundaries. So the result was an asymmetrical multiculturalism whereby minorities identified with their groups while Anglo-Protestants morphed into cosmopolitans. So, Randolph Bourne exhorted his fellow wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, breathe a larger air when his young Anglo-Saxons knew enthusiasms for continental literature, for unplumbed Russian depths, for French clarity of thought, for Teutonic philosophies of power. He feels himself a citizen of a larger world, may be absurdly superficial, his outward reach... may ignore all the stiller, more homely virtues of his Anglo-Saxon home, but he has at least found the clue to that international mind which will be essential to all men and women of goodwill if they are ever to save this Western world of ours from suicide. So this is wasp self-hatred becoming prominent around 1920. Bourne's most famous quote, War is the health of the state. Lots of padding to protect the NFL man. Yeah, but shorter pads have gotten much smaller, so therefore a shorter can deliver a much greater blow. Later in the 20th century, Anglo-Protestant identity became subsumed under white identity, and these ideas were applied to whites. So born, not Kalen, is the founding father of today's multiculturalist left, 
because he combines rebellion against his own culture and liberal progressive cosmopolitanism with an endorsement for minorities <clears throat> only of Kalin's ethnic conservatism. And neither Bourne nor William James is mentioned in the cultural critique. Now, this is not to suggest that Jews have not played an important role in the recent political history and the ascent of liberalism. Jews have been and continue to be extremely influential in virtually every area of intellectual life. Many of the most prominent advocates of liberalism, especially in America, were and are Jewish. This does not mean that Jews were responsible for the general leftward trend. Good natural experiment to test whether Jews were a necessary condition for the rise of liberalism and radicalism is to see whether societies in which Jews have more influence more radicalized than other societies. Pointed out that some of the most far-left liberal countries in the world are those where Jews are relatively small in numbers and influence. For example, Sweden may be the most extreme radical country in the world. David Schwartz, a pro-multiculturalism op-ed writer in the 1960s, and Barbara Lerner Spector notwithstanding, Jews are less than 0.2% of the population of Sweden, have very little influence, certainly far less influence than in places like the US and United Kingdom. Yet the Swedes took egalitarianism, feminism, gender theory, multiculturalism, open borders to extremes beyond any other country. When it comes to free speech, the Constitution of Sweden specifically does not protect expressions of contempt for a population group or other such group with allusions to race, color, national ethnic origin, religious faith, or sexual orientation. This means that fact-based discussion of controversial issues may be restricted in Sweden. For example, in 2021, a Swedish politician was criminally prosecuted under a hate crime law for mentioning national differences in IQ in the context of a debate about immigration and in a decision that was upheld by a higher court in 2022 is given a suspended sentence and a fine. Kevin McDonald responds in 2022 saying Jews are responsible for the political situation in Sweden. He offers five pieces of evidence to support this claim. A. The Bonnier family has long had a commanding presence in Swedish media. Between 1964-68, Jewish pro-immigration activist David Schwartz wrote or co-wrote 37 out of 118 articles debating immigration in Swedish newspapers. Another nine articles were written by other Jews. C. Minorities have an advantage in ethnic competition and being more mobilized than majorities. D. Minority influence is particularly effective in individualist cultures. Scandinavian societies are the most individualist cultures on earth. And E. Sweden is influenced by the wider trends in the West. So it is not at all surprising that trends that began in the U.S. would be adopted by Swedish thought leaders. Good medley says, Edward Dutton may be odd, but I don't see how he is spiteful. Good medley says that uh, Randolph Bourne was a prime example of Dutton's spiteful mutants. He had a freakishly hunchback body Nonetheless, the ladies loved him. It is difficult to overstate how inadequate this is as a piece of social science analysis. Swedes took egalitarianism, feminism, gender theory, multiculturalism, and open borders to extremes beyond any other country. How are 46 pro-multiculturalism articles published in the 1960s relevant to explaining this. The Bonniers, although originally Jewish, began intermarrying with Gentiles a long time ago and now identify as Lutherans. Ake Bonnier, who is currently one of the largest stakeholders in the Bonnier group, is a bishop in the Church of Sweden. In that the Bonniers had remained Jewish, which they did not. The idea that a single family can hijack the culture of millions of people via ownership of a media company needs to be supported by evidence. Kevin McDonald provides no evidence, simply asserting that the Bonnier family has long had a commanding presence in Swedish media or misleading, implying, misleadingly implying that they are Jewish. Okay, let me 
play a little bit here from a recent discussion with Mark Brom and Richard Spencer. You know, in terms of getting him elected, um, but also, again, it's because I think that there was he was tapping into an implicit racialist, a populist and racialist sentiment. And I think that these, you know, and I, I don't think that I don't think like I think a guy like Nick, I don't know exactly, you know, I, who knows exactly what the guy's thinking. Uh, ostensibly, he's an earnest Christian in the sense that he, you know, he really thinks that he, he wants it to be a Christian movement, in which case he's trying to, like, basically hijack a Trump Trumpism and turn it in a more Christian direction. Right. You yeah. can say that. Um, or he thinks, or he, you know, because I, I also think that there could be something uh, more Machiavellian going on with uh, uh, Nick, but I think it is a, a miscalculation uh, ultimately uh, that he thinks it, uh, that Christianity becomes the way of energizing, right? It becomes politically potent and powerful. But I, ultimately, I think it's, I think again, I think it's, it's, I don't think it has the legs. I, I think because it's just too crazy and it's, it's too. Um, I think it, um, the people it brings uh, forth, like Bobert and also Nick um, are, are people that are ultimately uh, alienating figures for a lot of people. Right. So uh-huh. it's, it becomes a kind of unnecessary uh, part of a political movement. Um, and uh, it, you know, so it ends up uh, fracturing uh, this sort of the, what kind of Trump started or the sort of the, the larger, broader populist movement that Trump started, it ends up uh, breaking that up. Um, so ultimately I think it's an unsuccessful strategy, but I think it's good that it's like getting a chance to um, spin its wheels or kind of like uh, uh, be exposed to oxygen as it were. Um, yeah. I think it's going to, I think it's going to, um, I think it's, it's going to die that, that movement or it's going to, it's going to weaken a uh, Christian nationalism. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I just, it's not, you know, it's not, it wasn't Trump's formula and um, I, you know, Christianity and, and it's just, it's, it's like appeals to too many like kind of weird people at this point. You know what I mean? Christianity is no longer um, a dominant uh, ideology or position. Right. So it's yeah. kind of it's more, I think it's, so it's, it's almost like Christians are now in the position or more in the, or closer to the position of early Christians in the sense that they're, they're trying to, you know, convert a population that doesn't believe. Uh, but I think that they have a lot of disadvantages. I, I don't think that they, you know, I think an early uh, Christian movement led by Jews is much more potent than uh, a revivalist movement, uh, you know, led by Gentiles effectively. Yeah. I mean, like j- j- just to reiterate what you were saying, there, I mean, that like assumed product. Okay. Let's get back to Nathan Kopnis. Regarding Kevin McDonald's point C, that minorities have an advantage in ethnic mobilization, McDonald appears to be making the claim that in group conflict, there's an advantage to be the minority. While it's true that minorities can sometimes prevail over larger populations by exhibiting higher degrees of unity, this is the exception, not the rule. Cultures are usually not controlled by minorities because being in the minority puts you at a disadvantage in gaining cultural influence. So suppose, for the sake of argument, that minorities are uniquely influential in supposedly individualist countries like Sweden, then why have the 810,000 Muslims who comprise 8% of the population not converted Swedes to Islam's right-wing views on feminism and gender theory? Kevin MacDonald resorts to blaming Swedish radicalism on Jews on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, saying it's not surprising Swedes would follow trends that began in the U.S., his approach has a lot in common with that of leftists who blame all of the problems of non-whites on far away and or long dead white people. Kevin MacDonald, even if there are a few or no Jews in a radicalized Gentile society, it is always possible to point the finger at a Jew who wrote some magazine article more than a half century ago or at Jews on a distant continent. Liberalism has been on the rise across cultures for many years. Stephen Pinker presents a grass which is shows the spread of emancipation emancipative, i.e. liberal values from 1960 to 2006 in 10 major cultural regions. It suggests that in the last several decades, liberalism has been rising steadily in all major societies. This is based on data that are extrapolated. Blah, blah, blah. 
Another key claim made by Kevin McDonald is that Jewish activists weaken nationalism in the majority of populations. This does not hold up under empirical scrutiny. 2014 survey reports the percentage of people in 64 countries who say they are willing to fight for their homeland, a measure of nationalist fervor. At the bottom are Japan and the Netherlands, while Morocco and Fiji are at the top. Are Jews associated with less willingness to fight? Jewish Virtual Library reports the Jewish internal populations for 52 of the 64 countries. And uh, there's no correlation right, between the percentage of Jews in your population and nation's willingness to fight. Nationalists see immigrants as a threat to racial and cultural survival. Do Jews shift public opinion in a pro-immigration directory? Well, turns out that attitudes towards immigration in nations are not statistically correlated with the percentage of Jews in the population. So what is responsible for the trend toward liberalism and waning nationalism, at least in rich democracies? This is an interesting and an important question, but the answer that it's the Jews, right, is a non-starter as an answer. Anti-Semitism is a cause and consequence. So I pointed out there's only one major white nationalist organization in the U.S. that is not explicitly anti-Semitic, namely American Renaissance, founded in 1990. In the early days, many of its most prominent supporters were Jews. Jewish support declined as anti-Semitism crept in among the rank and file. 2008 article published in the Occidental Observer, a journal edited by Kevin McDonald, reported that the Jewish question surfaced in one guise or another in almost all of the speeches that were given at this year's American Renaissance Conference. It is a source of increasing tension. The article concluded that do not pull the 11th chair up to a table set for 10, referring to a Jew trying to participate in a white nationalist movement from which he ought to be excluded. Kim McDonald does not dispute my claim that American Renaissance is the only major white nationalist organization that's not explicitly anti-Semitic, nor does he deny that many Jews have been driven out by anti-Semitism, although he asserts that there is a history of Jews attempting to influence white advocacy movements in a manner compatible with Jewish interests at the expense of developing a reasonable sense of white ethnic interests. He has not claimed that alone provided evidence that this happened in American Renaissance. So I will accept that. I assume he accepts my contention that the one white nationalist movement that is not officially anti-Semitic lost much of its Jewish support because of widespread anti-Semitism among its members. So Jared Taylor has not come out in support of uh, Nathan Kofnis's, you know, analyses of uh, Kevin McDonald's writings on the Jewish question. So what one, one might have thought that uh, Jared would, would be promoting this analysis, but he hasn't. So it seems that, uh, that uh, Jared Taylor's decision to not publicly criticize Jews. It's much more of a strategic rather than a heartfelt one. So it seems the default hypothesis is no trouble explaining why Jews are underrepresented among prominent white nationalists. You do not need to posit a group evolutionary strategy to explain why Jews tend to be less well represented in political movements that are anti-Jewish call for Jews to be second-class citizens expelled or killed. Uh, Kaufman adds, I'm commenting on this from a neutral scientific perspective. I'm not suggesting that Jews ought to support white nationalism. Scientific question is whether the default hypothesis provides a reasonable explanation for why Jews are less overrepresented in the leadership of far-right nationalist movements compared to liberal leftist movements. So shorthand for the word science and scientific means to pursue truth wherever it leads. That's what it should mean. 
Jews have been heavily involved in the leadership of nationalist movements when they were welcomed. Jews were among the primary architects of Italian fascism. The political, financial, and strategic support of one particular Jew was probably a necessary condition for the political success of Benito Mussolini. So Mussolini's Jewish associates helped to bring about the conversion of Mussolini to fascism. But the most important Jewish fascist is a woman, Margarita Safati, wife of Cesar Safati. So Safati, the female, influenced a fire summary. She played key roles at every stage in the formulation of fascist philosophy, Mussolini's rise to power. She even slept with Mussolini to give him the strength to become you know, a full-on fascist. She is sometimes described as Mussolini's mistress, which she was. But for many years, she was Mussolini's intellectual mentor, benefactor, and closest advisor. Her roles as biographer, ghostwriter, journalist, newspaper editor, mistress, and leading cultural figure in Italy. She was the most important propagandist for the strong um, nationalist movement. It was she who urged Mussolini for months to undertake the march on Rome that led him to be appointed prime minister. She provided the fascists with their first martyr. So her young son, Roberto, a fervent Italian nationalist, enlisted to fight in World War I and was killed. Mussolini used Roberto's heroic death to justify fascist violence. Soon the fascists would gain other martyrs in their battles with the socialists. But Mussolini had appropriated Roberto, a Jewish kid, as the first. Besides being an Italian nationalist, so Mussolini's mistress here was a white nationalist in something like the one sense expressing concern about white civilization and the birth rate of whites relative to those of Africans and Asians. So why have you never heard of Margarita Safati? At the time, her influence was no secret. In 1938, the New York Mirror described her as a Jewess who was the guiding star of Premier Mussolini's rights of power. Nevertheless, she got written out of history, I suspect, because it was in no one's interest to recognize her. After the fascists turned anti-Semitic, they did their best to bury her story. And Jewish groups also don't want to know that this Jewish woman have played a huge role in the development of fascism in Italy. And uh, Mussolini only turned anti-Jewish around 1938 when he was kind of forced to by his coalition with Germany. The Jews played an outsized role in one of history's two successful fascist movements. And many people consider Nazism not to be fascist, fascist because Nazism is racist and fascism according to some theories, is not racist. So you could say that Jews played a huge role in the development of history's one successful fascist movement. They might have done the same thing in Germany if they had not been deliberately driven away. According to Hitler, the only thing that kept Jews out of his Nazi movement was anti-Semitism. Hitler said, Jews have been ready to help me in my political struggle. At the outset of our movement, some Jews actually gave financial assistance if I had but held out. My little finger, I would have had the whole lot crowding around me. So various experiences throughout the 20th century have now presumably taught Jews a lesson about how they can expect to be treated after nationalists take power, even when the Jews play by the nationalist rules. Even Margarita Safati was forced to flee Italy, Italy in 1938. Her sister and brother-in-law were killed in the Italian Holocaust. I'll play a little bit more here from 
Mark Brahman and uh, Richard Spencer. Christian, Christian nationalism of the 20th century is now waning. It might still kind of, you know, Biden will some, he'll end speeches saying, God bless America, God bless the troops or something. But it, it's, you know, he's old. You know, it's, it's, it's a waning phenomenon where it was just a dominant culture. We were all just swimming in it. And now these Christians like almost are in the position of early Christians in the sense that they're a marginal renegade group of some sort trying to vis-a-vis -vis the wider culture, which they see as pagan. And that, that is an interesting development. And I, I think it's like, I think their perception is uh, accurate in some ways and accurate in other ways. I, I think we still actually live in a profoundly Christian culture, but, but uh, you know, at least on, a, on surface levels, they're, they are correct about that. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you're, what you're defining there. Like you could see, for example, you could say that liberalism, as we say, is, is a kind of uh, end product of Christianity, right? Yeah. Or, um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, these movements, Christian nationalism, I think is a much more marginal movement um, uh, than we realize. Like, in other words, I think it's going to, um, I think it had a, a kind of aggressive and uh, it had a kind of aggressive and bold beginning um, over this last year, particularly uh -huh. really when the term uh, came into the uh, lexicon. Um but I, I think it's—I uh, don't—I don't think it's long for the world, to be honest with you. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm totally wrong because it's—you know—I I mean, it, it does sort of go against the thesis that uh, the society is getting crazier and the QAnon movements and these—you know—new religious developments will occur. Um, but I just think that politically, they—they they will lack potency ultimately. Okay, I hope we don't lack potency on this show. Despite that many pre-Nazi eugenicists in Germany were Nordic supremacists and anti-Semites, Jews were prominently represented among leading supporters and spokesmen for eugenics. Half-Jewish Wilhelm Weinberg was chair of the Stuttgart Racial Hygiene Society. <laughs> Racial Hygiene Society in your community. Famous Jewish geneticist Richard Goldschmidt was an important advocate of eugenics. Alfred Plotz, a Gentile who founded the Racial Hygiene Society, considered Jews to be a civilized race. He predicted that uh, anti-Semitism would wane with the advance of democracy and science. According to Weidling, in its early years, it appeared immaterial whether a member of the Racial Hygiene Society was Jewish. However, Plotz began noting who among recruits to the nascent racial hygienist movement was Jewish, and he sought allies to curb Jewish influence, indicating that Jewish influence was perceived to be significant. After the Nazis took power, the anti-Semitic wing of the eugenics movement, which emphasized the superiority of the Nordic race and advocated segregation vis-a-vis -vis Jews, won out, thus providing another lesson in how things can go wrong for Jews who support European nationalism, especially of the race-based variety. Kevin MacDonald writes in 2022, my view is that Jews should be allowed to join white nationalist movements if they acknowledge the role and power of the Jewish community, transforming America contrary to white interests and direct their efforts at converting the Jewish community to pro-white advocacy question of whether McDonald is an anti-Semite is irrelevant to the truth of his scientific theories about Judaism, but it is relevant to testing the default hypothesis with respect to Jewish underrepresentation in contemporary American white nationalist movements, in which he is arguably the most influential thought leader. So Greg Johnson says he became a white nationalist after reading Ken McDonald, and Richard Spencer has called Ken McDonald the most important intellectual in the alt-right. Can Kevin McDonald be considered an anti-Semite? Commenting on his own intellectual development, McDonald says that the main point is that I came to see Jewish groups as competitors with the European majority of the U.S., thus he draws a distinction between Jews and white Gentiles, seeing Jews as competitors. He reports that he has come to the point of seeing his subjects and Jews in less than flattering light. Regarding his current view, let us consider some statements he made in an interview in November 2021. One of the interviewers said, to me, there are no good Jews, nor can they be good think ultimately deep down they're badly motivated and that they can't never be trusted. And from my point of view, there are no good ones. Kevin McDonald replied, 
that's probably a good rule of thumb. An interviewer said that the only relation that we could have with Jews is that they serve us instead of us serving them. Donald Wright replied, right, we have to be in the leadership position. And asked what he thinks of Hitler, the Third Reich, and National Socialism. Kevin MacDonald had almost nothing bad to say. He does not mention Nazi treatment of Jews at all. Uh, Kevin MacDonald publishes Holocaust denial articles by Thomas Dalton. One article said the latest gap gave us a chance to shine a light on the ongoing fraud that is the Holocaust. Here's a passage from a recent representative article published in the Occidental Observer, edited by Kevin MacDonald. He's juggly, as you might say. That is, he's ugly in a characteristically Jewish way. I agree with a fascinating article at the neo-Nazi magazine National Vanguard, arguing that Jews themselves are an unattractive and on average ugly people, and that Jews as a group oppose beauty, where Jews and leftists on average ugly people and ugly Jewish brains have consistently created ugly ideologies that war on the indissoluble trinity of truth, beauty, and goodness. So Kevin MacDonald thinks essentially there are no good Jews, nor can they be good, and that is a good rule of thumb. Kevin MacDonald says Jews should be forbidden from occupying leadership positions in white nationalist movements. He agrees that the only proper role for Jews is to serve white Gentiles. He has many positive things to say about Hitler and Nazism. He promotes Holocaust denial. Kevin MacDonald justifies his skepticism about the Holocaust by attacking claims that are promulgated namely by Gentiles, and rejected by mainstream Holocaust scholars. As editor of the Occidental Observer and the Occidental Quarterly, he regularly publishes nasty, scientifically baseless screeds against Jews. He's closely associated with open anti-Semites such as Richard Spencer, who dreams of a Jew-free white ethnostate, and former Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke, on whose radio show Kevin MacDonald has regularly appeared, whom he endorsed for political office. And if I am right, he has spent the last three decades developing and promoting a pseudo-scientific theory based on misrepresented sources and cherry-picked facts that portray Jews as uniquely pernicious. MacDonald says he does not like to call his work anti-Semitic, preferring the label Judeo-critical. Whether you call him Judeo-critical or anti-Semitic, I do not think you need to postulate a group evolutionary strategy to explain why so few Jews have volunteered to accept dimitude in his political movement. That's uh, Nathan Kopnis is magnum opus on Kevin MacDonald's work. Yeah, Adolf Hitler, you know, modeled many of his policies, including eugenic policies, on far more pervasive policies in the United States. He sent an adoring fan letter to U.S. eugenics organization before becoming world leader. He also praised Australia's white Australia policy. Uh, chat says, Jared Taylor gave a positive response to a super chat question regarding his assessment of Kevin McDonald during 2022. Bridget Spencer did a big show on The Karate Kid, the 1980s show, how it was really a story about the fear of immigrants overrunning America. One might think Christianity is a big thing in the United States. False. What is really on the rise is Apollonianism. <laughs> I believe in any one grand wizard. His name is Luke Ford. Best posture on YouTube. Are there any recordings of Apollo Adolf speaking in English? (laughs) 
Okay, next section, anti-Semitism and the appeal of the anti-Jewish narrative. Commenting on opposition to hereditarian explanations of race differences, society observes that some people will think it is praiseworthy to focus just on the arguments and avoid political imputations. But, he says, this approach will sometimes make important aspects of a scientific controversy completely unintelligible. Trying to understand the dynamics of contemporary discussions about heritability, race, and IQ without mentioning politics is very much like attempting to understand the debate about intelligent design by focusing only on biological complexity, find details of the bacterial flagellum and intricacies of probability reasoning, but completely ignoring the religious context. Same is true with respect to the controversy over whether Jews undermine Gentile civilization to advance their own evolutionary interests. This is a scientific proposition, the correctness of which should be determined using scientific methods. It is also true that important aspects of the debate make no sense. We ignore the socio-political context, specifically the fact that there is a millennia-old tradition of Jew hatred in the West. Well, isn't there also a millennia-old tradition of Jewish you know, fear and frequently negative feelings about some of the non-Jews around them? Jews, the most enduringly disliked group in the world, anti-Semitism first reached genocidal intensity in ancient times. Since their expulsion from Israel by the Romans in the 2nd century, Jews have frequently come into contact with Gentiles among whom they lived. Some of the same complaints have been repeatedly made, that Jews are arrogant exploiters, that they exercise secret power to advance their interests. Could it be that the accusations are true? If anti-Semitism were a response to actual Jewish wrongdoing, it would be misleading for the default hypothesis to invoke it as an independent force that explains Jewish political behavior. So, Kofner proposes that anti-Semitism has a straightforward explanation. It is not that Jews really are a race of criminals. Rather, anti-Semitism is largely explained by the same factors that explain other ethnic hatreds. There are unique elements to anti-Semitism. What makes Jew hatred unique is largely a consequence of the special status of Jews in the world's two most popular religions. This does not imply that Jews have never done anything wrong, either individually or collectively, or that such wrongdoing does not explain some instances of anti-Jewish sentiment. The default assumption should be that Jews are not significantly better or worse than any other people. Group conflicts are sometimes triggered by wrongdoing on one or both sides, and there is no reason to think that Jews are always in the right. Jews are no different from anyone else. It makes anti-Semitism different from other kinds of prejudice. Most people in the world follow a religion based on Judaism, namely Christianity or Islam. In both of these offshoot religions, Jews have an ambivalent status that can easily inspire hostility. So it will be the situation, the circumstance, that will largely determine whether this ambivalent status turns into hostility. Many contemporary Christians emphasize the philo-Semitic, meaning pro-Jewish side of the religion. There is a strong strand of philo-Semitism among Old Testament-oriented American Christians starting with the Puritans who identify with the ancient Israelites. However, parts of the New Testament can be read as supporting a more sinister attitude toward Jews. Some passages in the New Testament seem to collectively hold Jews responsible for killing Jesus and to portray Jews as the enemies of God and of humanity in general. This is a three-hour banger from Ford, folks. It's the extra beef organ pills.
Uh, Paul could have adopted the strategy of some other early followers of Jesus and simply rejected the Hebrew scriptures as false. Had he done so, ancient Christians might have come to regard Judaism as just another spiritually irrelevant identity. But instead, Paul built a new approach to scriptural interpretation based on a foundation of questions that the believers about the believer's relationship to Judaism. So the members of uh, the Hebrew Bible came, came to be seen in the Christian perspective as proto-Christians. The Christian identity was originally constructed in large part based on an adversarial relationship to Jews and Judaism. Like Jesus and his early disciples, the church fathers who formulated what became Christian orthodoxy did not work in a Jewish milieu. Christianity came to be dominated by people of non-Jewish descent and Jews became scattered and powerless. Yet the logic of Jewish enmity and the killing carnality of the Jews only grew stronger, driven now, not so much by conflict with real Jews, but because it proved ever more generally useful for thinking about God, the world, and the nature of the religious texts and powers that mediate between them. So Jews were seen as representing the flesh, the letter, and the law in verses such as the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Christians attacked their theological opponents as Jews. In the 4th century, when Jews were not in a position to persecute anyone, Christians lobbied the, lobbied the secular leader to discredit a group of rivals called the Montanists. Is there anyone among the Montanists who has been persecuted by the Jews or killed by the lawless? Anti-Jewish rhetoric reached a crescendo in the year 386 when John of Antioch, also known as St. John Chrysostom, delivered a series of eight sermons against the Jews. So I was growing up as a son of Desmond Ford, Christian evangelical Christian theologian. I heard like 20 times, no, I heard that the Jews had suffered and been scattered all around the world as a result of their rejecting Jesus and that uh, Jews were no longer the real Jews, that evangelical Christians were the true Jews, that the Jews that were alive in the world today were, were pretenders. My father had very typical pre-Holocaust Christian views of, of Jews. But still, my father said 20 times more negative things about Catholics than he did about Jews. I don't recall any childhood discussion in my home about Jews. My father had fairly pro-Jewish state of Israel views until he encountered Arabs at the University of uh, Michigan State University in the late 1950s, where he started to understand more of the Arab perspective. So St. John Chrysostom's message was, although such beasts are not fit for work, they are fit for killing. This is why Christ said, but as for my enemies who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slay them. Augustine, who historians said encountered only a single Jew in the entire life, invoked the less genocidal but still ominous Psalm 59, slay them not, but scatter them in your might, lest your people forget your law. Like Jesus, Muhammad claimed to be the true heir to the Jewish prophetic tradition, so Jews were destined to have a special status in his religion. Islam borrowed elements of Christianity's anti-Judaism to serve similar theological purposes. Since Muhammad rejected the authenticity of parts of Jewish scripture, Jews had to be regarded as frauds who falsified religion for nefarious purposes. Sensitive about the relationship between Judaism and Islam, early Muslims would, like Christians, sometimes accuse each other of being Jewish or influenced by Jews. Jewish opposition to Islamic ideas and practices is a perennial theme in Islam. The religious motive for anti-Semitism was to some extent an accident of history. If Europe and the Middle East had remained pagan or if Christianity and Islam had rejected Judaism wholesale, Jews would not have been perceived as having any profound and potentially negative cosmic significance. But by claiming 
continuity with the Jewish tradition, Christianity and Islam had to construct identities based in part on opposition to Jews and Judaism, and for many centuries this was a powerful source of prejudice against Jews. Although Christian anti-Semitism left an indelible mark on our culture, religion has been on the wane for centuries in the West and no longer appears to be the primary source of hostility toward Jews. Pro-Jewish interpretations of Christianity become highly influential, but there are at least three non-religious forces that have been extremely important in promoting hatred of Jews as well as other minorities in similar situations. So we have market-dominant minorities, always subject to the same calumny that they are cheaters, exploiters, conspirators, and so on. Minorities often resent more successful majorities, though they usually cannot act on these feelings. So hostility to prosperous groups and individuals is often motivated by a false theory of economics that assumes that the wealth of one must come at the expense of the other. Overseas Chinese who dominate the economies of Southeast Asia have been subject to intense prejudice, discrimination, and large-scale violence. As recently as 1998, there were deadly pogroms targeting ethnic Chinese in Indonesia. In 1972, Idi Amin expelled Asians, primarily Indians, from Uganda. So resentment against Asians had been building up within Uganda's black majority. Idi Amin called the Asians bloodsuckers, accused them of milking the economy of its wealth. Was Were Amin's accusations justified? Without the Indian bloodsuckers, Uganda's economy quickly tanked. Similarly, after President Robert Mugabe promised to strike fear in the heart of the white man, our real enemy, and then confiscated the land of whites, controlled most of Zimbabwe's farming industry, average Zimbabweans became far poorer than before. Jews have often been conspicuously economically successful. Prominent Gentile thinkers, perhaps most famously Mark Twain, have highlighted the economic motive for anti-Semitism. Uh, Thomas Sowell argues that minorities tend to be most despised when they occupy the widely misunderstood economic niche of middleman. Ethnic hatred is often cultivated for political advantage. Given their double minority status being different ethnically and religiously, combined with their high socioeconomic position, it is unsurprising that Jews have been a favorite scapegoat for political leaders looking to deflect, blame, and rally support. So Karl Luger, the influential anti-Semitic mayor of Vienna from 1897 to 1910, a role model for Hitler, made a remarkable statement to another Austrian politician that anti-Semitism is a good means of agitation to get ahead in politics. But once one gets up there, one doesn't need it anymore, for it is a sport for the common people. Hitler's anti-Semitism was sincere, but it also served a political function. When asked whether he intended to destroy the Jew, Hitler replied, no, we should then have to invent him. It is essential to have a tangible enemy, not merely an abstract one. So in Mein Kampf, Hitler writes, the soul of the people can only be won if along with carrying out a positive struggle for our own aims, we destroy the opponent of these aims. The people at all times see the proof of their own right in ruthless attack on a foe. And let's go back to this uh, Mark Brum and Richard Spencer discussion. Um, or, but I mean, or... Um, I guess it depends because I think right now there's a kind of vacuum, right? With Trump uh, declining or appearing to decline, uh, there's a vacuum. And, um, but I think something, I think a strategy similar to Trump's could be very successful again. Uh, but it's, you know, so maybe it's, uh, maybe it's our guy down in Florida, but I, you know, I, I don't know that he has the charisma necessarily to create the same sort of movement. He's in, I think he's too conservative. He's not. Yeah. He's going to create a conservative. He's like Ted Cruz. basically. Yeah. That's the thing that lost. That's the thing. He is the thing that Trump defeated. And we're just going back to that. And I, 
yeah, that, that's why I, I, I don't see any kind of real radical potential there. And I, I'm not, it just doesn't attract me. I, I find it very off-putting. Whereas I've, gosh, I hate to say it, I've developed this like weird Trump, like contrarian nostalgia or something. I don't know what it is. Did, did you guys uh, see that after this whole uh, Nick meeting Mar-a-Lago thing? I think it was like a week or two after there was some news report that Trump was going to ask, or he, he had he had asked um, Kushner and, and uh, Ivanka to um, to not be in the you know the 2024 his, his 2024 campaign, which I thought was odd because of course he could just say that they weren't going to be. But also it was the timing was I mean maybe it was totally coincidental, maybe the report isn't true, and I haven't really checked back up on that. But it almost seemed like it was a um, it was like Trump kind of seeing oh there's this threat there are these people who you know don't like. <laughs> You know, yeah. critical of um, this, this, you know, undeniable, huge Jewish influence on his administration. And, you know, there was the whole thing with. And the chat says beyond entertainment or amusement, how much value lies in listening to Richard Spencer and Mark Brahman? It depends what you're looking for. So there's an intellectual entertainment in it, uh, particularly with, with Spencer. He's, he's very contrarian and unexpected. But he's not someone that I would like to set my to set my perspective by. You know, not build foundations there. Okay, let's get a little bit more from Kopnis here. Houston Stuart Chamberlain, who is an important anti-Semitic theorist, major influence on Hitler, recognized the attraction of irrational Jew hatred and lamented the revolting tendency to make the Jews a scapegoat for all the vices of the time. Because there is a principle of psychology that bad is stronger than good. We are often miffed by our enemies more than we appreciate our allies. If you're already primed to regard Jews with suspicion and Jews are overrepresenting the leadership of practically every non-anti-Semitic political movement, Jews on the side you oppose may be more psychologically salient. Thus, communists attack Jews for being capitalists or vice versa. Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the most influential anti-Semitic text of modern times, refers to the successes of Darwinism, Marxism, and Nietzscheism that were engineered by Jews, also portrays Jews as rapacious promoters of capitalism and control the gold supply. Hitler asked rhetorically, was there any form of filth or profligacy, particularly in cultural life, without at least one Jew in it? The answer to Hitler's question may well be no, but our reflection should be obvious that the presence of at least one member of a group in every activity one dislikes is not a reasonable basis for drawing conclusions about the character or social consequences of the group as a whole, In the same vein, ignoring the role that we in our group have played in bringing about a situation we do not like comes naturally to us. For example, suppose you're unhappy about mass immigration. Here is a list of the nine official resettlement agencies in the USA that receive funding from the Department of State. A, Church World Service. B, Episcopal Migration Ministry. C, Ethiopian Community Development Council. D, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. E, International Rescue Committee. F, Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services. G, U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. H, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, I, World Relief Corporation. Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which is a Jewish organization, gets an inordinate amount of attention from the far right. Tree of Life Synagogue Shooter famously complained about highest bringing invaders. But the eight non-Jewish resettlement agencies are ignored. Also ignored is the fact that highest is a branch in Israel working to grant refugee status to non-Jewish Africans. So this is the context in which Kevin McDonald has promulgated his theory that Jews undermine Gentile civilization to advance their own evolutionary interests. His theory should be assessed on its scientific merits, not on the motives of the man who devised it or of the people who came to accept it. But the eager reception with which Kevin McDonald's ideas have been received in some quarters is an interesting social phenomenon 
which can itself be subjected to scientific analysis. All right, that's the conclusion. Of course, I'm going to say something. I could only imagine what middle-class people or people in the hood think is. So I do want anybody that's responsible of these prices to put the down. Yeah. So do you understand what she meant through well, the beeps? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I watched the whole thing. She's a great economist. And yes, grocery prices are up 12% over the past year. Who can afford it? Even Cardi B. Although, where do you find $7 a head lettuce? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm British. I don't really <laughs> buy lettuce. I always get the prepackaged stuff that's already chopped up on its own and tells me what's in it. Yeah. As opposed to giving me lettuce like I'm a pilgrim and telling me to deal <laughs> with it for myself. You have the next story. Yes. Okay. So I'm sure your parents taught you that they, it doesn't matter what you choose to do, but at least be the best at it and Kill Me certainly is. So, movie theater employee Jason Grobel here going viral because he takes his job very seriously. Have you looked at the skills on this guy? I mean, he should move across the country and just entertain everybody that goes into theater. So, this is perfectly layered popcorn, perfect popcorn to butter, and look how he tosses it. Oh, listen, and if you put it up a little, you know who he's doing it to? He's actually playing to a song. We'll put it up in music second. Oh, there's no sound? It's actually to a Celine Dion song, and he's so good at this, he's been invited to the Oscars. Wow. No, I believe that. Wow. Next story I want to share with you. Speaking of Celine Dion, she was snubbed, and her fans are outraged. After all, look at how successful she's been. I'm outraged. She's sold more than 200 million albums, and when asked for the greatest singers of all time, guess what? (laughs) She did not make the top five list. Aretha Franklin, Sam Cooke, Billie Holiday, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston all made the cut. Is there, is this right? Do you agree with this snub? Well, okay, so there's one person that made the list. I think we're going to bring him up, right? The guy from American Idol, well, this William is a little, Hung. Yeah, this is a little controversial. Lacks talent. Uh, I have to say, that's kind of what I sound like in the shower. Because she looks like it love, but she stinks like it be. Like every girl in history. Right. So you made the listen, list. I had a problem with Sam Cooke and with William Hung on that list. So uh, besides that, I think if he is on that list, Celine uh, Dion should be angry. That's but William right. Hung was a sensation. Yeah, but I love Celine Dion. Like, I always do this. Like, it's always like... Because she's a Celine. powerful woman yes. with a big voice, with a, big and a, voice and and a does, small body. She does, like, you know, very powerful gesticulations. Okay, so where are we going next? We are going to Woke California that got some brand new laws, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. Guess what? They are implementing a series of new laws, including banning the sale of fur, decriminalizing J walking, so no longer have to pay the price for walking across the street when no one else is around. And they also are decriminalizing prostitution-based loitering. So you're allowed to stand around the prostitute without getting a ticket. Is this moving America in the right direction? I think it's all about the fur trade for me, because didn't California make their money on fur? I'm not touching the prostitution part of it. Right. But the fur trade. I mean, girls need to stay warm. How dare you, Bennett? That's been around for 1800s. I I did not realize that. I did not realize you were going to take a stand (laughs) on fur. I thought it was more decriminalizing sex work and just stopping the bad stigma it has on it. I'm I'm a capitalist, so I believe that people that want to work hard, however you want to do it, congratulations. Just pay your taxes. That's right. That's all we ask. Uh, Susan, we're going to watch you all around the channel because you never stop working. Uh, (laughs) Let me just tell you, too, uh, Susan's on the radio show a lot, and if you do listen this week from 9 to noon on Everywhere You Have a Radio, John Crashauer amongst our guests, Doug Collins on what's going on with this speaker stuff, and so much more. You can catch me weekdays, Monday through Friday from 6 to 9 on cable television, Fox and Friends. I'm one of them. Also, follow me on social media because I need people around me. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Rumble. Do you know who's next by any chance? Do you have your TV guide? 
uh, who's next on the show? Or no, the next, next on, on our channel? channel. I believe it's Dan Bongino. No? I think it is. Do you mind if we stay here and watch? Sure. Okay. Good to be back. I missed you all. So all eyes have been on Capitol Hill this week. You know, people on both sides calling out Congress over the speaker fight, right? Meanwhile, Democrats are hoping you don't notice the real clown show going on. Tonight, I pull back the curtain on the less embarrassing circus act going on. Plus, I've said it on this show before. Democrats are the party of real racism. Yeah, that's right. Now, one of their most radical members just put that racism on a disgusting display on social media. One of the GOP's rising stars is here to react. And... On True Crime Unfiltered, we now know there's a mountain of DNA evidence linking the accused killer of those Idaho University students. A forensic expert joins me to connect the crucial dots that could ultimately bring a conviction. And forget soldiers, why don't you send a robot army to the front lines? How the use of drones and AI, artificial intelligence in the Middle East and Ukraine could be ushering in a dangerous new era of warfare. Okay, so now that we finally have a speaker in the house, I'm going to talk about something. I want to talk about how the media and the whole clown show on the left portrayed this entire process. Okay, that's going to do it for me. Take care. Bye.